Chapter 61 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. D'Artagnan Hits on a Plan As night closed in, they arrived at Thirsk. The four friends appeared to be entire strangers to one another, and indifferent to the precautions taken for guarding the king. They withdrew to a private house, and as they had reason every moment to fear for their safety, they occupied but one room and provided an exit which might be useful in case of an attack. The lackeys were sent to their several posts, except that Grimaud lay on a truss of straw across the doorway. D'Artagnan was thoughtful, and seemed for the moment to have lost his usual loquacity. Porthos, who could never see anything that was not self-evident, talked to him as usual. He replied in monosyllables, and Athos and Aramis looked significantly at one another. Next morning, D'Artagnan was the first to rise. He had been down to the stables, already taken a look at the horses and given the necessary orders for the day, whilst Athos and Aramis were still in bed and Porthos snoring. At eight o'clock the march was resumed in the same order as the night before, except that D'Artagnan left his friends and began to renew the acquaintance which he had already struck up with Monsieur Groslow. Groslow, whom D'Artagnan's praises had greatly pleased, welcomed him with a gracious smile. "'Really, sir,' D'Artagnan said to him, "'I am pleased to find one with whom to talk in my own poor tongue. My friend Monsieur de Vallon is of a very melancholy disposition, so much so that one can scarcely get three words out of him all day. As for our two prisoners, you can imagine that they are but little in the vein for conversation.' "'They are hot royalists!' said Groslow. The more reason they should be sulky with us for having captured their steward, for whom I hope you are preparing a pretty trial. Why, said Groslow, that is just what we are taking him to London for. And you never by any chance lose sight of him, I presume. I should think not, indeed. You see, he has a truly royal escort. I, there's no fear in the daytime. But at night we redouble our precautions and what method of surveillance do you employ eight men remain constantly in his room the deuce he is well guarded then but besides these eight men you doubtless place some guard outside oh no just think what would you have two men without arms do against eight armed men two men how do you mean? Yes, the king and his lackey. Oh, then they allow the lackey to remain with him. Yes, Stuart begged this favor and Harrison consented. Under pretense that he's a king, it appears he cannot dress or undress without assistance. Really, Captain, said D'Artagnan, determined to continue on the laudatory tack on which he had commenced. The more I listen to you, the more surprised I am at the easy and elegant manner in which you speak French. You have lived three years in Paris. May I ask what you were doing there? My father, who is a merchant, placed me with his correspondent, who in turn sent his son to join our house in London. Were you pleased with Paris, sir? Yes, but you are much in want of a revolution like our own, not against your king who is a mere child, but against that Lazar of an Italian, the queen's favorite. Ah, I am quite of your opinion, sir, 
and we should soon make an end of Mazarin if we had only a dozen officers like yourself, without prejudices, vigilant, and incorruptible. But, said the officer, I thought you were in his service, and that it was he who sent you to General Cromwell. Uh, that is to say, I am in the king's service, and that knowing he wanted to send someone to England, I solicited the appointment. So great was my desire to know the man of genius, who now governs the three kingdoms. So that when he proposed to us to draw our swords in honor of old England, you see how he snapped up the proposition. Yes, I know that you charged by the side of Mordaunt. On his right and left, sir. Ah, there's another brave and excellent young man. Do you know him? asked the officer. Yes, very well. Monsieur de Vallon and myself came from France with him. It appears, too, you kept him waiting a long time at Boulogne. What would you have? I was like you, and had a king in keeping. Aha! said Groslow. What king? Our own, to be sure. The little one, Louis the Fourteenth. And how long had you to take care of him? three nights and by my troth i shall always remember those three nights with a certain pleasure how do you mean i mean that my friends officers in the guards and musketeers came to me to keep company and we passed the night in feasting drinking dicing ah true said the englishman with a sigh you frenchmen are born boon companions and don't you play too when you are on guard never said the englishman in that case you must be horribly bored and have my sympathy the fact is i look to my turn for keeping guard with horror it's tiresome work to keep awake a whole night yes but with a jovial partner and dice and guineas clinking on the cloth the night passes like a dream you don't like playing then on the contrary i do lansquenet for instance devoted to it i used to play almost every night in france and since your return to england i have not handled a card or dice-box i sincerely pity you said d'artagnan with an air of profound compassion look here said the englishman well to-morrow i am on guard in stuart's room yes come and pass the night with me impossible impossible why so i play with monsieur de vallon every night sometimes we don't go to bed at all well what of that why he would be annoyed if i did not play with him does he play well i have seen him lose as much as two thousand pistoles laughing all the while till the tears rolled down bring him with you then but how about our prisoners let your servants guard them yes and give them a chance of escaping said d'artagnan why one of them is a rich lord from Touraine, and the other a knight of Malta, a noble family. We have arranged the ransom of each of them, two thousand on arriving in France, 
we are reluctant to leave for a single moment men whom our lackeys know to be millionaires it is true we plundered them a little when we took them and i will even confess that it is their purse that monsieur de vallon and i draw on in our nightly play still they may have concealed some precious stone some valuable diamond so that we are like those misers who are unable to absent themselves from their treasures we have made ourselves the constant guardians of our men and while i sleep monsieur de vallon watches oh ha, ha, said groslow you see then why i must decline your polite invitation which is especially attractive to me because nothing is so wearisome as to play night after night with the same person the chances always balance and at the month's end nothing is gained or lost oh said groslow sighing there is something still more wearisome and that is not to play at all i can understand that said d'artagnan but come resumed the englishman are these men of yours dangerous in what respect are they capable of attempting violence d'artagnan burst out laughing at the idea jesus day he cried one of them is trembling with fever having failed to adapt himself to this charming country of yours and the other is a knight of malta as timid as a young girl and for greater security we have taken from them even their penknives and pocket scissors well then said groslow bring them with you but really said d'artagnan i have eight men on guard you know four of them can guard the king and the other four your prisoners i'll manage it somehow you will see but said d'artagnan now i think of it what is to prevent our beginning to-night nothing at all said groslow just so come to us this evening and to-morrow we'll return your visit capital this evening with you to-morrow at stuart's the next day with me you see that with a little forethought one can lead a merry life anywhere and everywhere said d'artagnan yes with frenchmen and frenchmen like you and monsieur de vallon added the other you will see what a fellow he is a man who nearly killed mazarin between two doors they employ him because they are afraid of him ah there he is calling me now you'll excuse me i know they exchanged bows and d'artagnan returned to his companions what on earth can you have been saying to that bulldog exclaimed porthos my dear fellow don't speak like that of monsieur groslow he's one of my most intimate friends one of your friends cried porthos this butcher of unarmed farmers hush my dear porthos monsieur groslow is perhaps rather hasty it's true but at bottom i have discovered two good qualities in him he is conceited and stupid porthos opened his eyes in amazement athos and aramis looked at one another and smiled they knew d'artagnan and knew that he did nothing without a purpose but continued d'artagnan you shall judge of him for yourself he is coming to play with us this evening ho ho said porthos his eyes glistening at the news is he rich he's the son of one of the wealthiest merchants in london and knows lansquinet adores it must say his mania Beribi. 
revels in it good said porthos we shall pass an agreeable evening the more so as it will be the prelude to a better how so we invite him to play tonight he has invited us in return tomorrow but wait tonight we stop at derby and if there is a bottle of wine in the town let mousqueton buy it it will be well to prepare a light supper of which you athos and aramis are not to partake athos because i told him you had a fever aramis because you are a knight of malta and won't mix with fellows like us do you understand that's no doubt very fine said porthos but deuce take me if i understand at all porthos my friend you know i am descended on the father's side from the prophets and on the mothers from the sibyls and that i only speak in parables and riddles let those who have ears hear and those who have eyes see i can tell you nothing more at present go ahead my friend said athos i am sure that whatever you do is well done and you aramis are you of that opinion entirely so my dear d'artagnan very good said d'artagnan here indeed are true believers it is a pleasure to work miracles before them they are not like that unbelieving porthos who must see and touch before he will believe the fact is said porthos with an air of finesse i am rather incredulous d'artagnan gave him a playful buffet on the shoulder and as they had reached the station where they were to breakfast the conversation ended there at five in the evening they sent mousqueton on before as agreed upon blaisois went with him in crossing the principal street in derby the four friends perceived blaisois standing in the doorway of a handsome house it was there a lodging was prepared for them at the hour agreed upon groslow came d'artagnan received him as he would have done a friend of twenty years standing porthos scanned him from head to foot and smiled when he discovered that in spite of the blow he had administered to parry's brother he was not nearly so strong as himself athos and aramis suppressed as well as they could the disgust they felt in the presence of such coarseness and brutality in short groslow seemed to be pleased with his reception athos and aramis kept themselves to their role at midnight they withdrew to their chamber the door of which was left open on the pretext of kindly consideration furthermore d'artagnan went with them leaving porthos at play with groslow porthos gained fifty pistoles from groslow and found him a more agreeable companion than he had at first believed him to be as to groslow he promised himself that on the following evening he would recover from d'artagnan what he had lost to porthos and on leaving reminded the gascon of his appointment the next day was spent as usual d'artagnan went from captain groslow to colonel harrison and from colonel harrison to his friends to anyone not acquainted with him he seemed to be in his normal condition but to his friends to athos and aramis was apparent a certain feverishness in his gaiety what is he contriving asked aramis wait said athos porthos said nothing but he handled in his pocket the fifty pistoles he had gained from groslow with a degree of satisfaction which betrayed itself in his whole bearing arrived at ryston d'artagnan assembled his friends his face had lost the expression of careless gaiety it had worn like a mask the whole day athos pinched aramis's hand the moment is at hand he said yes returned d'artagnan who had overheard him tonight gentlemen we rescue the king d'artagnan said athos this is no joke i trust 
it would quite cut me up. "'You are a very odd man, Athos,' he replied, "'to doubt me thus. "'Where and when have you seen me trifle with a friend's heart and a king's life? "'I have told you, and I repeat it, that tonight we rescue Charles I. "'You left it to me to discover the means, and I have done so.' Porthos looked at D'Artagnan with an expression of profound admiration. Aramis smiled as one who hopes. Athos was pale and trembled in every limb. "'Speak!' said Athos. "'We are invited,' replied D'Artagnan, "'to pass the night with Monsieur Groslow. "'But do you know where?' "'No.' "'In the king's room.' "'The king's room?' cried Athos. "'Yes, gentlemen, in the king's room. "'Groslow is on guard there this evening, "'and to pass the time away he has invited us to keep him company.' "'All four of us?' asked Athos. Pardieu, certainly all four. We couldn't leave our prisoners, could we? Ha, ha, said Aramis. Tell us about it, said Athos, palpitating. We are going, then, we two with our swords, you with daggers. We four have got to master these eight fools and their stupid captain. Monsieur Porthos, what do you say to that? I say it is easy enough, answered Porthos. We dress the king in Groslow's clothes. Mousqueton, Grimaud, and Blaisois have our horses saddled at the end of the first street. We mount them, and before daylight are twenty leagues distant. Athos placed his two hands on D'Artagnan's shoulders and gazed at him with his calm, sad smile. "'I declare, my friend,' said he, "'that there is not a creature under the sky who equals you in prowess and in courage. Whilst we thought you indifferent to our sorrows, which you couldn't share without crime, you alone among us have discovered what we were searching for in vain. I repeat it, D'Artagnan, you are the best one among us. I bless and love you, my dear son. And to think that I couldn't find that out, said Porthos, scratching his head. It is so simple. But, said Aramis, if I understand rightly, we are to kill them all, eh? Athos shuddered and turned pale. Mordieu! answered d'artagnan i believe we must i confess i can discover no other safe and satisfactory way let us see said aramis how are we to act i have arranged two plans firstly at a given signal which shall be the words at last you each plunge a dagger into the heart of the soldier nearest you we on our side do the same that will be four killed we shall then be matched four against the remaining five. If these five men give themselves up, we gag them. If they resist, we kill them. If by chance our Amphitryon changes his mind and receives only Porthos and myself, why, then we must resort to heroic measures and each give two strokes instead of one. It will take a little longer time and may make a greater disturbance, but you will be outside with swords and will rush in at the proper time. But... "'If you yourselves should be struck,' said Athos. "'Impossible,' said D'Artagnan. "'Those beer-drinkers are too clumsy and awkward. "'Besides, you will strike at the throat, Porthos. "'It kills as quickly and prevents all outcry.' "'Very good,' said Porthos. "'It will be a nice little throat-cutting.' "'Horrible, horrible!' exclaimed Athos. "'Nonsense,' said D'Artagnan. You would do as much, Mr. Humanity, in a battle. 
but if you think the king's life is not worth what it must cost there's an end of the matter and i send to Groslow to say i am ill no you are right said athos at this moment a soldier entered to inform them that Groslow was waiting for them where asked d'artagnan in the room of the english nebuchadnezzar replied the staunch puritan good replied athos whose blood mounted to his face at the insult offered to royalty tell the captain we are coming the puritan then went out the lackeys had been ordered to saddle eight horses and to wait keeping together and without dismounting at the corner of a street about twenty steps from the house where the king was lodged it was nine o'clock in the evening the sentinels had been relieved at eight and captain groslow had been on guard for an hour d'artagnan and porthos armed with their swords and athos and aramis each carrying a concealed poniard approached the house which for the time being was charles stuart's prison the two latter followed their captors in the humble guise of captives without arms odd bodikins said groslow as the four friends entered i had almost given you up d'artagnan went up to him and whispered in his ear the fact is we that is monsieur de vallon and i hesitated a little and why d'artagnan looked significantly toward athos and aramis ah uh -huh, said groslow on account of political opinions no matter on the contrary he added laughing if they want to see their steward they shall see him are we to pass the night in the king's room asked d'artagnan no but in the one next to it and as the door will remain open it comes to the same thing have you provided yourself with money i assure you i intend to play the devil's game to-night d'artagnan rattled the gold in his pockets very good said groslow and opened the door of the room i will show you the way and he went in first d'artagnan turned to look at his friends porthos was perfectly indifferent athos pale but resolute aramis was wiping a slight moisture from his brow the eight guards were at their posts four in the king's room two at the door between the rooms and two at that by which the friends had entered athos smiled when he saw their bare swords he felt it was no longer to be a butchery but a fight and he resumed his usual good humor charles was perceived through the door lying dressed upon his bed at the head of which parry was seated reading in a low voice a chapter from the bible a candle of coarse tallow on a black table lighted up the handsome and resigned face of the king and that of his faithful retainer far less calm from time to time parry stopped thinking of the king whose eyes were closed was really asleep but charles would open his eyes and say with a smile go on my good parry i am listening Groslow advanced to the door of the king's room replaced on his head the hat he had taken off to receive his guests looked for a moment contemptuously at this simple yet touching scene then turning to d'artagnan assumed an air of triumph at what he had achieved capital cried the gascon you would make a distinguished general and do you think asked Groslow, that stuart will ever escape while i'm on guard no to be sure replied d'artagnan unless forsooth the sky rains friends upon him Groslow's face brightened it is impossible to say whether charles who kept his eyes constantly closed had noticed the insolence of the puritan captain 
but the moment he heard the clear tone of d'artagnan's voice his eyelids rose in spite of himself parry too started and stopped reading what are you thinking about said the king go on my good parry unless you are tired parry resumed his reading on a table in the next room were lighted candles cards two dice boxes and dice gentlemen said Croslow, i beg you will take your places i will sit facing stuart whom i like so much to see especially where he is now and you monsieur d'artagnan opposite to me athos turned red with rage d'artagnan frowned at him that is said d'artagnan you monsieur le comte de la fere to the right of monsieur Groslow, you chevalier d'herblay to his left duvelon next me you'll bet for me and those gentlemen for monsieur Groslow. by this arrangement d'artagnan could nudge porthos with his knee and make signs with his eyes to athos and aramis at the names comte de la fere and chevalier d'herblay charles opened his eyes and raising his noble head in spite of himself threw a glance at all the actors in the scene at that moment parry turned over several leaves of his bible and read with a loud voice this verse in jeremiah god said hear ye the words of the prophets my servants whom i have sent unto you the four friends exchanged glances the words that parry had read assured them that their presence was understood by the king and was assigned to its real motive d'artagnan's eyes sparkled with joy you asked me just now if i was in funds said d'artagnan placing some twenty pistoles upon the table well in my turn i advise you to keep a sharp lookout on your treasure my dear monsieur Groslow, for i can tell you we shall not leave this without robbing you of it not without my defending it said Groslow. so much the better said d'artagnan fight my dear captain fight you know or you don't know that that is what we ask of you oh yes said Groslow, bursting with his usual coarse laugh i know you frenchmen want nothing but cuts and bruises charles had heard and understood it all a slight color mounted to his cheeks the soldiers then saw him stretch his limbs little by little and under the pretense of much heat throw off the scotch plaid which covered him athos and aramis started with delight to find that the king was lying with his clothes on the game began the luck had turned and Groslow, having won some hundred pistoles was in the merriest possible humor porthos who had lost the fifty pistoles he had won the night before and thirty more besides was very cross and questioned d'artagnan with a nudge of the knee as to whether it would not soon be time to change the game athos and aramis looked at him inquiringly but d'artagnan remained impassable it struck ten they heard the guard going its rounds how many rounds do they make a night asked d'artagnan drawing more pistoles from his pocket five answered Groslow. one every two hours d'artagnan glanced at athos and aramis and for the first time replied to porthos's nudge of the knee by a nudge responsive meanwhile the soldiers whose duty it was to remain in the king's room attracted by that love of play so powerful in all men had stolen little by little toward the table and standing on tiptoe lounged watching the game over the shoulders of d'artagnan and porthos those on the other side had followed their example thus favoring the views of the four friends who preferred having them close at hand to chasing them about the chamber the two sentinels at the door still had their swords unsheathed but they were leaning on them while they watched the game
Athos seemed to grow calm as the critical moment approached. With his white, aristocratic hands, he played with the louis, bending and straightening them again, as if they were made of pewter. Aramis, less self-controlled, fumbled continually with his hidden poniard. Porthos, impatient at this continued losses, kept up a vigorous play with his knee. D'Artagnan turned mechanically, looking behind him, and between the figures of two soldiers he could see Parry standing up, and Charles leaning on his elbow with his hands clasped and apparently offering a fervent prayer to God. D'Artagnan saw that the moment was come. He darted a preparatory glance at Athos and Aramis, who slyly pushed their chairs a little back, so as to leave themselves more space for action. He gave Porthos a second nudge of the knee, and Porthos got up as if to stretch his legs, and took care at the same time to ascertain that his sword could be drawn smoothly from the scabbard. "'Hang it!' cried D'Artagnan. "'Another twenty pistoles lost! Really, Captain Groslow, you are too much in fortune's way. This can't last!' and he drew another twenty from his pocket. One more turn, Captain, twenty pistoles on one throw. Only one, the last. Done for twenty, replied Groslow, and he turned up two cards as usual, a king for D'Artagnan and an ace for himself. A king, said D'Artagnan. It's a good omen. Master Groslow, look out for the king. And in spite of his extraordinary self-control, there was a strange vibration in the Gascon's voice which made his partner start. Groslow began turning the cards one after another. If he turned up an ace, first he won. If a king, he lost. He turned up a king. At last! cried D'Artagnan. At this word, Athos and Aramis jumped up. Porthos drew back a step. Daggers and swords were just about to shine when suddenly the door was thrown open and Harrison appeared in the doorway accompanied by a man enveloped in a large cloak. Behind this man could be seen the glistening muskets of half a dozen soldiers. Groslow jumped up, ashamed at being surprised in the midst of wine, cards, and dice. But Harrison paid not the least attention to him, and entering the king's room, followed by his companions, "'Charles Stuart,' said he, "'an order has come to conduct you to London, without stopping day or night. Prepare yourself, then, to start at once.' "'And by whom is this order given?' asked the king. "'By General Oliver Cromwell, and here is Mr. Mordaunt, who has brought it and is charged with its execution.' "'Mordaunt!' muttered the four friends, exchanging glances. D'Artagnan swept up the money that he and Porthos had lost, and buried it in his huge pocket. Athos and Aramis placed themselves behind him. This movement, Mordaunt turned around, recognized them, and uttered an exclamation of savage delight. "'I am afraid we are prisoners,' whispered D'Artagnan to his friend. "'Not yet,' replied Porthos. "'Colonel! Colonel!' cried Mordaunt. "'You are betrayed. These four Frenchmen have escaped from Newcastle, and no doubt want to carry off the king. Arrest them!' "'Ah, my young man,' said D'Artagnan, drawing his sword, that is an order sooner given than executed. Fly, friends, fly! He added, whirling his sword around him. The next moment he darted to the door and knocked down two of the soldiers who guarded it before they had time to cock their muskets. Athos and Aramis followed him. Porthos brought up the rear, and before soldiers, officers, or colonel had time to recover their surprise, all four were in the street. Fire! cried Mordaunt. Fire upon them! Three or four shots were fired, 
but with no other result than to show the four fugitives turning the corner of the street safe and sound. The horses were at the place fixed upon, and they leaped lightly into their saddles. "'Forward!' cried D'Artagnan, "'and spur for your dear lives!' They galloped away and took the road they had come by in the morning, namely in the direction toward Scotland. A few hundred yards beyond the town, D'Artagnan drew rein. "'Halt!' he cried. "'This time we shall be pursued. We must let them leave the village and ride after us on the northern road, and when they have passed, we will take the opposite direction.' There was a stream close by, and a bridge across it. D'Artagnan led his horse under the arch of the bridge. The others followed. Ten minutes later they heard the rapid gallop of a troop of horsemen. A few minutes more, and the troop passed over their heads. End of chapter 61 Recording by John Van Stan Savannah, Georgia Chapter 62 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexander Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. London As soon as the noise of the hooves was lost in the distance, D'Artagnan remounted the bank of the stream and scoured the plain, followed by his three friends, directing their course, as well as they could guess, toward London. This time said d'artagnan when they were sufficiently distant to proceed at a trot i think all is lost and we have nothing better to do than to reach france what do you say athos to that proposition isn't it reasonable yes dear friend athos replied but you said a word the other day that was more than reasonable it was noble and generous you said let us die here i recall to you that word Oh said porthos death is nothing it isn't death that can disquiet us since we don't know what it is what troubles me is the idea of defeat as things are turning out i foresee that we must give battle to london to the provinces to all england and certainly in the end we can't fail to be beaten we ought to witness this great tragedy even to its last scene said athos Whatever happens, let us not leave England before the crisis. Don't you agree with me, Aramis? Entirely, my dear Count. Then, too, I confess I should not be sorry to come across Mordaunt again. It appears to me that we have an account to settle with him, and that it is not our custom to leave a place without paying our debts. Of this kind, at least. Ha! That's another thing, said D'Artagnan and I should not mind waiting in London a whole year for a chance of meeting this Mordaunt in question. Only let us lodge with someone on whom we can count, for I imagine just now that Noel Cromwell would not be inclined to trifle with us. Athos, do you know any inn in the whole town where one can find white sheets, roast beef reasonably cooked, and wine which is not made of hops and gin? I think I know what you want, replied Athos. De Winter took us to the house of a Spaniard who, he said, had become naturalized as an Englishman by the guineas of his new compatriots. What do you say to it, Aramis? Why, the idea of taking quarters with Signor Perez seems to me very reasonable, and for my part I agree to it. We will invoke the remembrance of that poor De Winter, for whom he seemed to have a great regard. We will tell him that we have come as amateurs to see what is going on, we will spend with him a guinea each per day, 
and I think that by taking all these precautions we can be quite undisturbed. You forget, Aramis, one precaution of considerable importance. What is that? The precaution of changing our clothes. Changing our clothes? exclaimed Porthos. I don't see why. We are very comfortable in those we wear. To prevent recognition, said D'Artagnan, our clothes will have a cut which would proclaim the Frenchman at first sight. Now, I don't set sufficient store on the cut of my jerkin to risk being hung at Tyburn, or sent for change of scene to the Indies. I shall buy a chestnut-colored suit. I've remarked that your Puritans revel in that color. But can you find your man? said Aramis to Athos. Oh, to be sure, yes. He lives at the Bedford Tavern, Greenhall Street. Besides, I can find my way about the city with my eyes shut. I wish we were already there, said D'Artagnan, and my advice is that we reach London before daybreak, even if we kill our horses. Come on, then, said Athos, for unless I am mistaken in my calculations, we have only eight or ten leagues to go. The friends urged on their horses and arrived, in fact, at about five o'clock in the morning. They were stopped and questioned at the gate by which they sought to enter the city, but Athos replied in excellent English that they had been sent forward by Colonel Harrison to announce to his colleague, Monsieur Bridge, the approach of the king. That reply led to several questions about the king's capture, and Athos gave details so precise and positive that if the gatekeepers had any suspicions, they vanished completely. The way was therefore open to the four friends, with all sorts of Puritan congratulations. Athos was right. He went direct to Bedford Tavern, and the host, who recognized him, was delighted to see him again with such a numerous and promising company. Though it was scarcely daylight, our four travelers found the town in a great bustle, owing to the reported approach of Harrison and the king. The plan of changing their clothes was unanimously adopted. The landlord sent out for every description of garment, as if he wanted to fit up his wardrobe. Athos chose a black coat, which gave him the appearance of a respectable citizen. Aramis, not wishing to part with his sword, selected a dark blue cloak of a military cut. Porthos was seduced by a wine-colored doublet and sea-green breeches. D'Artagnan, who had fixed on his color beforehand, had only to select the shade and looked in his chestnut suit exactly like a retired sugar-dealer. "'Now,' said D'Artagnan, "'for the actual man, we must cut off our hair that the populace may not insult us. As we no longer wear the sword of the gentleman, we may as well have the head of the Puritan. This, as you know, is the important point of distinction between the Covenanter and the Cavalier.' After some discussion, this was agreed to, and Mousqueton played the role of barber. "'We look hideous,' said Athos. "'And smack of the Puritan to a frightful extent,' said Aramis. "'My head feels actually cold,' said Porthos. "'As for me, I feel anxious to preach a sermon,' said D'Artagnan. "'Now,' said Athos, "'that we cannot even recognize one another, "'and have therefore no fear of others recognizing us, "'let us go and see the king's entrance.' They had not been long in the crowd before loud cries announced the king's arrival. A carriage had been sent to meet him, and the gigantic Porthos, who stood ahead above the entire rabble, soon announced that he saw the royal equipage approaching. 
D'Artagnan raised himself on tiptoe, and as the carriage passed, saw Harrison at one window and Mordaunt at the other. The next day, Athos, leaning out of his window, which looked upon the most populous part of the city, heard the act of Parliament, which summoned the ex-king, Charles I, to the bar, publicly cried. "'Parliament, indeed!' cried Athos. "'Parliament can never have passed such an act as that!' At this moment the landlord came in. "'Did Parliament pass this act?' Athos asked of him in English. "'Yes, my lord, uh, the pure Parliament.' "'What do you mean by the pure Parliament? Are there then two Parliaments?' "'My friend,' D'Artagnan interrupted, "'as I don't understand English, and we all understand Spanish, have the kindness to speak to us in that language, which, since it is your own, you must find pleasure in using when you have the chance.' "'Ah, excellent!' said Aramis. As to Porthos, all his attention was concentrated on the allurements of the breakfast-table. "'You were asking, then,' said the host in Spanish. "'I asked,' said Athos in the same language, "'if there are two parliaments, a pure and an impure.' "'Why, how extraordinary!' said Porthos, slowly raising his head and looking at his friends with an air of astonishment. "'I understand English, then. I understand what you say.' "'This is because we are talking in Spanish, my dear friend,' said Athos. "'Oh, the devil,' said Porthos. "'I am sorry for that. It would have been one language more.' "'When I speak of the pure Parliament,' resumed the host, "'I mean the one which Colonel Bridge has weeded.' "'Ah, really,' said D'Artagnan. "'These people are very ingenious. When I go back to France I must suggest some such convenient course to Cardinal Mazarin and the coadjutor. One of them will weed the Parliament in the name of the court.' and the other in the name of the people, and then there won't be any Parliament at all. "'And who is this Colonel Bridge?' asked Aramis. "'And how does he go to work to weed the Parliament?' "'Colonel Bridge,' replied the Spaniard, "'is a retired wagoner, a man of much sense, who made one valuable observation whilst driving his team, namely, that where there happened to be a stone on the road, it was much easier to remove the stone than try and make the wheel pass over it.' now of two hundred and fifty-one members who composed the parliament there were one hundred and ninety-one who were in the way and might have upset his political wagon he took them up just as he formerly used to take up the stones from the road and threw them out of the house neat remarked d'artagnan very and all these one hundred and ninety-one were royalists asked athos without doubt signor and you understand that they would have saved the king to be sure said porthos with majestic common sense they were in the majority and you think said aramis he will consent to appear before such a tribunal he will be forced to do so smiled the spaniard now athos said d'artagnan do you begin to believe that it's a ruined cause and that what with your Harrisons, Joyces, Bridges, and Cromwells, we shall never get the upper hand. The king will be delivered at the tribunal, said Athos. The very silence of his supporters indicates that they are at work. D'Artagnan shrugged his shoulders. But, said Aramis, if they dare to condemn their king, it can only be to exile or imprisonment. 
D'Artagnan whistled a little air of incredulity. "'We shall see,' said Athos, "'for we shall go to the sittings, I presume.' "'You will not have long to wait,' said the landlord. "'They begin to-morrow.' "'So then they drew up the indictments before the king was taken.' "'Of course,' said D'Artagnan. "'They began the day he was sold.' "'And you know,' said Aramis, "'that it was our friend Mordaunt who made, if not the bargain, at least the overtures.' and you know added d'artagnan that whenever i catch him i will kill him this mordaunt and i too exclaimed porthos and i too added aramis touching unanimity cried d'artagnan which well becomes good citizens like us let us take a turn around the town and imbibe a little fog yes said porthos twill be at least a little change from beer End of chapter 62. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 63 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After by Alexander Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Trial The next morning, King Charles I was hailed by a strong guard before the high court which was to judge him. All London was crowding to the doors of the house. The throng was terrific, and it was not till after much pushing and some fighting that our friends reached their destination. When they did so, they found the three lower rows of benches already occupied. But being anxious not to be too conspicuous, all, with the exception of Porthos, who had a fancy to display his red doublet, were quite satisfied with their places the more so as chance had brought them to the centre of their row, so that they were exactly opposite the armchair prepared for the royal prisoner. Toward eleven o'clock the king entered the hall, surrounded by guards, but wearing his head covered and, with a calm expression, turned to every side with a look of complete assurance, as if he were there to preside at an assembly of submissive subjects, rather than to meet the accusations of a rebel court. The judges, proud of having a monarch to humiliate, evidently prepared to enjoy the right they had arrogated to themselves and sent an officer to inform the king that it was customary for the accused to uncover his head charles without replying a single word turned his head in another direction and pulled his felt hat over it then when the officer was gone he sat down in the armchair opposite the president and struck his boots with the little cane which he carried in his hand parry who accompanied him stood beside him d'artagnan was looking at athos whose face betrayed all those emotions which the king, possessing more self-control, had banished from his own. This agitation in one so cold and calm as Athos frightened him. "'I hope,' he whispered to him, "'that you will follow his majesty's example and not get killed for your folly in this den.' "'Set your mind at rest,' replied Athos. "'Ah!' continued D'Artagnan. "'It is clear that they are afraid of something or other, for look!' the sentinels are being reinforced they had only halberds before now they have muskets the halberds were for the audience in the rear the muskets are for us thirty forty fifty sixty-five men said porthos counting the reinforcements ah said aramis but you forget the officer d'artagnan grew pale with rage he recognized mordaunt 
who with bare sword was marshalling the musketeers behind the king and opposite the benches. "'Do you think they have recognized us?' said D'Artagnan. "'In that case I should beat a retreat. I don't care to be shot in a box.' "'No,' said Aramis. "'He has not seen us. He sees no one but the king. Mon Dieu, how he stares at him, the insolent dog! Does he hate his majesty as much as he does us?' Pardi, answered Athos, we only carried off his mother. The king has spoiled him of his name and property. True, said Aramis, but silence. The president is speaking to the king. Stuart, Bradshaw was saying, listen to the roll call of your judges and address to the court any observations you may have to make. The king turned his head away as if these words had not been intended for him. Bradshaw waited, and as there was no reply, there was a moment of silence. Out of the hundred and sixty-three members designated, there were only seventy-three present, for the rest, fearful of taking part in such an act, had remained away. When the name of Colonel Fairfax was called, one of those brief but solemn silences ensued, which announced the absence of the members who had no wish to take a personal part in the trial. "'Colonel Fairfax,' repeated Bradshaw. "'Fairfax,' answered a laughing voice, the silvery tone of which betrayed it as that of a woman. "'Is not such a fool as to be here?' A loud laugh followed these words, pronounced with that boldness which women draw from their own weakness, a weakness which removes them beyond the power of vengeance. "'It is a woman's voice,' cried Aramis. "'Faith!' I would give a good deal if she is young and pretty. And he mounted on the bench to try and get a sight of her. By my soul, said Aramis, she is charming. Look, D'Artagnan, everybody is looking at her, and in spite of Bradshaw's gaze, she has not turned pale. It is Lady Fairfax herself, said D'Artagnan. Don't you remember, Porthos, we saw her at General Cromwell's? The roll call continued. "'These rascals will adjourn when they find that they are not in sufficient force,' said the Comte de la Fere. "'You don't know them, Athos. Look at Mordaunt's smile. Is that the look of a man whose victim is likely to escape him? Ha! Cursed basilisk! It will be a happy day for me when I can cross something more than a look with you.' "'The king is really very handsome,' said Porthos. "'And look, too!' though he is a prisoner how carefully he is dressed the feather in his hat is worth at least five-and-twenty pistoles look at it aramis the roll-call finished the president ordered them to read the act of accusation athos turned pale a second time he was disappointed in his expectation notwithstanding the judges were so few the trial was to continue the king then was condemned in advance i told you so athos said d'artagnan shrugging his shoulders now take your courage in both hands and hear what this gentleman in black is going to say about his sovereign with full license and privilege never till then had a more brutal accusation or meaner insults tarnished kingly majesty charles listened with marked attention passing over the insults noting the grievances and when hatred overflowed all bounds and the accuser turned executioner beforehand replying with a smile of lofty scorn the fact is 
said D'Artagnan. "'If men are punished for imprudence and triviality, this poor king deserves punishment. But it seems to me that that which he is just now undergoing is hard enough.' "'In any case,' Aramis replied, "'the punishment should not fall on the king, but on his ministers, for the first article of the Constitution is, the king can do no wrong.' "'As for me,' thought Porthos, giving Mordaunt his whole attention, were it not for breaking in on the majesty of the situation, I would leap down from the bench, reach Mordaunt in three bounds, and strangle him. I would then take him by the feet and knock the life out of these wretched musketeers who parody the musketeers of France. Meantime, D'Artagnan, who is full of invention, would find some way to save the king. I must speak to him about it. As to Athos, his face aflame, his fists clenched, his lips bitten till they bled. He sat there foaming with rage at that endless parliamentary insult and that long-enduring royal patience. The inflexible arm and steadfast heart had given place to a trembling hand and a body shaken by excitement. At this moment the accuser concluded with these words, "'The present accusation is preferred by us in the name of the English people.' At these words there was a murmur along the benches, and a second voice— not that of a woman, but a man's stout and furious thundered behind D'Artagnan. "'You lie!' it cried. Nine-tenths of the English people are horrified at what you say.' This voice was that of Athos, who, standing up with outstretched hand and quite out of his mind, thus assailed the public accuser. King, judges, spectators, all turned their eyes to the bench where the four friends were seated. Mordaunt did the same and recognized the gentleman— around whom the three other Frenchmen were standing, pale and menacing. His eyes glittered with delight. He had discovered those to whose death he had devoted his life. A movement of fury called to his side some twenty of his musketeers, and pointing to the bench where his enemies were, "'Fire on that bench!' he cried. But with the rapidity of thought D'Artagnan seized Athos by the waist, and followed by Porthos with Aramis, leaped down from the benches, rushed into the passages, and flying down the staircase were lost in the crowd without, while the muskets within were pointed on some three thousand spectators, whose piteous cries and noisy alarms stopped the impulse already given to bloodshed. Charles also had recognized the four Frenchmen. He put one hand on his heart, to still its beating, and the other over his eyes, that he might not witness the slaying of his faithful friends. Mordaunt, pale and trembling with anger, rushed from the hall, sword in hand, followed by six pikemen, pushing, inquiring, and panting in the crowd, and then, having found nothing, returned. The tumult was indescribable. More than half an hour passed before anyone could make himself heard. The judges were looking for a new outbreak from the benches. The spectators saw the muskets leveled at them, and, divided between fear and curiosity, remained noisy and excited. Quiet was at length restored. "'What have you to say in your defense? asked Bradshaw of the king. Then, rising with his head still covered, in the tone of a judge rather than a prisoner, Charles began. "'Before questioning me,' he said, "'reply to my question. I was free at Newcastle, and had there concluded a treaty with both houses. Instead of performing your part of this contract, as I performed mine, you bought me from the Scotch, cheaply, I know.' and that does honor to the economic talent of your government. But, because you have paid the price of a slave, 
do you imagine that i have ceased to be your king no to answer you would be to forget it i shall only reply to you when you have satisfied me of your right to question me to answer you would be to acknowledge you as my judges and i only acknowledge you as my executioners and in the middle of a death-like sentence charles calm lofty and with his head still covered sat down again in his armchair why are not my frenchmen here he murmured proudly and turning his eyes to the benches where they had appeared for a moment they would have seen that their friend was worthy of their defence while alive and of their tears when dead well said the president seeing that charles was determined to remain silent so be it we will judge you in spite of your silence you are accused of treason of abuse of power and murder the evidence will support it go and another sitting will accomplish what you have postponed in this charles rose and turned toward parry whom he saw pale and with his temples dewed with moisture well my dear parry said he what is the matter and what can affect you in this manner oh my king said parry with tears in his eyes and in a tone of supplication do not look to the left as we leave the hall and why parry uh, do not look i implore you my king but what is the matter speak said charles attempting to look across the hedge of guards which surrounded him it is but you will not look will you it is because they have had the axe with which criminals are executed brought and placed here on the table the sight is hideous fools said charles do they take me for a coward like themselves you have done well to warn me thank you parry when the moment arrived the king followed his guards out of the hall as he passed the table on which the axe was laid he stopped and turning with a smile said ah the axe an ingenious device and well worthy of those who know not what a gentleman is you frighten me not executioner's axe added he touching it with the cane which he held in his hands and i strike you now waiting patiently and christianly for you to return the blow and shrugging his shoulders with unaffected contempt he passed on when he reached the door a stream of people who had been disappointed in not being able to get into the house and to make amends had collected to see him come out stood on each side as he passed many among them glaring on him with threatening looks how many people thought he and not one true friend and as he uttered these words of doubt and depression within his mind a voice beside him said respect to fallen majesty the king turned quickly around with tears in his eyes and heart it was an old soldier of the guards who could not see his king pass captive before him without rendering him this final homage but the next moment the unfortunate man was nearly killed with heavy blows of sword hilts and among those who set upon him the king recognized captain groslow alas said charles that is a severe chastisement for a very trifling fault he continued his walk but he had scarcely gone a hundred paces when a furious fellow leaning between two soldiers spat in the king's face as once an infamous and accursed jew spit in the face of jesus of nazareth 
loud roars of laughter and sullen murmurs arose together the crowd opened and closed again undulating like a stormy sea and the king imagined that he saw shining in the midst of this living wave the bright eyes of athos charles wiped his face and said with a sad smile poor wretch for half a crown he would do as much to his own father the king was not mistaken athos and his friends again mingling with the throng were taking a last look at the martyr king when the soldier saluted charles athos's heart bounded for joy and that unfortunate on coming to himself found ten guineas that the french gentleman had slipped into his pocket but when the cowardly insulter spat in the face of the captive monarch athos grasped his dagger but d'artagnan stopped his hand and in a hoarse voice cried wait athos stopped d'artagnan leaning on athos made a sign to porthos and aramis to keep near them and then placed himself behind the man with the bare arms who was still laughing at his own vile pleasantry and receiving the congratulations of several others the man took his way toward the city the four friends followed him the man who had the appearance of being a butcher descended a little steep and isolated street looking on to the river with two of his friends arrived at the bank of the river the three men perceived that they were followed turned around and looking insolently at the frenchman passed some jests from one to another i don't know english athos said d'artagnan but you know it and will interpret for me then quickening their steps they passed the three men but turned back immediately and d'artagnan walked straight up to the butcher and touching him on the chest with the tip of his finger said to athos say this to him in english you are a coward you have insulted a defenseless man you have befouled the face of your king you must die athos pale as a ghost repeated these words to the man who seeing the bodeful preparations that were making put himself in an attitude of defence aramis at this movement drew his sword no cried d'artagnan no steel steel is for gentlemen and seizing the butcher by the throat porthos said he kill this fellow for me with a single blow porthos raised his terrible fist which whistled through the air like a sling and the portentous mass fell with a smothered crash on the insulter's skull and crushed it the man fell like an ox beneath the pole-axe his companions horror-struck could neither move nor cry out tell them this athos resumed d'artagnan thus shall all die who forget that a captive man is sacred and that a captive king doubly represents the lord athos repeated d'artagnan's words the fellows looked at the body of their companion swimming in blood and then recovering voice and legs together ran screaming off justice is done said porthos wiping his forehead and now said d'artagnan to athos entertain no further doubts about me i undertake all that concerns the king end of chapter sixty three recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter sixty four of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume two, twenty years after, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Whitehall. The Parliament condemned Charles to death, as might have been foreseen. Political judgments are generally vain formalities, for the same passions which give rise to the accusation ordain to the condemnation. Such is the atrocious logic of revolutions. 
although our friends were expecting that condemnation it filled them with grief d'artagnan whose mind was never more fertile in resources than in critical emergencies swore again that he would try all conceivable means to present the denouement of the bloody tragedy but by what means as yet he could form no definite plan all must depend on circumstances meanwhile it was necessary at all hazards in order to gain time to put some obstacle in the way of the execution on the following day the day appointed by the judges the only way of doing that was to cause the disappearance of the london executioner the headsman out of the way the sentence could not be executed true they could send for the headsman of the nearest town but at least a day would be gained and a day might be sufficient for the rescue d'artagnan took upon himself that more than difficult task another thing not less essential was to warn charles stuart of the attempt to be made so that he might assist his rescuers as much as possible or at least do nothing to thwart their efforts aramis assumed that perilous charge charles stuart had asked that bishop juxon might be permitted to visit him mordaunt had called on the bishop that very evening to apprise him of the religious desire expressed by the king and also of cromwell's permission aramis determined to obtain from the bishop through fear or by persuasion consent that he should enter in the bishop's place and clad in his sacerdotal robes the prison at whitehall finally athos undertook to provide in any event the means of leaving england in case either of failure or of success the night having come they made an appointment to meet at eleven o'clock at the hotel and each started out to fulfill his dangerous mission the palace of whitehall was guarded by three regiments of cavalry and by the fierce anxiety of cromwell who came and went or sent his generals or his agents continually alone in his usual room lighted by two candles the condemned monarch gazed sadly on the luxury of his past greatness just as at the last hour one sees the images of life more mildly brilliant than of yore parry had not quitted his master and since his condemnation had not ceased to weep charles leaning on a table was gazing at a medallion of his wife and daughter he was waiting first for juxon then for martyrdom at times he thought of those brave french gentlemen who had appeared to him from a distance of a hundred leagues fabulous and unreal like the forms that appear in dreams in fact he sometimes asked himself if all that was happening to him was not a dream or at least the delirium of a fever he rose and took a few steps as if to rouse himself from his torpor and went as far as the window he saw glittering below him the muskets of the guards he was thereupon constrained to admit that he was indeed awake and that this bloody dream was real charles returned in silence to his chair rested his elbow on the table bowed his head upon his hand and reflected alas he said to himself if i only had for a confessor one of those lights of the church whose soul has sounded all the mysteries of life all the littlenesses of greatness perhaps his utterance would overawe the voice that wails within my soul but i shall have a priest of vulgar mind whose career and fortune i have ruined by my misfortune he will speak to me of god and death as he has spoken to many another dying man not understanding that this one leaves his throne to a usurper his children to the cold contempt of public charity and he raised the medallion to his lips it was a dull foggy night 
a neighboring church clock slowly struck the hour. The flickering light of the two candles showed fitful phantom shadows in the lofty room. These were the ancestors of Charles, standing back dimly in their tarnished frames. An awful sadness enveloped the heart of Charles. He buried his brow in his hands and thought of the world, so beautiful when one is about to leave it, of the caresses of children, so pleasing and so sweet, especially when one is parting from his children never to see them again. Then of his wife, the noble and courageous woman who had sustained him to the last moment. He drew from his breast the diamond cross and the star of the garter, which she had sent him by those generous Frenchmen. He kissed it, and then as he reflected that she would never again see those things till he lay cold and mutilated in the tomb, there passed over him one of those icy shivers which may be called forerunners of death. Then in that chamber which recalled to him so many royal souvenirs, whither had come so many courtiers, the scene of so much flattering homage, alone with a despairing servant whose feeble soul could afford no support to his own, the king at last yielded to sorrow, and his courage sank to a level with that feebleness, those shadows, and that wintry cold. That king who was so grand, so sublime in the hour of death, meeting his fate with a smile of resignation on his lips, now in that gloomy hour, wiped away a tear which had fallen on the table and quivered on the gold-embroidered cloth. Suddenly the door opened. An ecclesiastic in episcopal robes entered, followed by two guards, to whom the king waved an imperious gesture. The guards retired. The room resumed its obscurity. "'Juxon,' cried Charles. "'Juxon, thank you, my last friend. You come at a fitting moment.' The bishop looked anxiously at the man sobbing in the ingle nook. "'Come, Parry,' said the king. "'Cease your tears.' "'If it's Parry,' said the bishop, "'I have nothing to fear. So allow me to salute your majesty, and to tell you who I am, and for what I come.' At this sight and this voice, Charles was about to cry out, when Aramis placed his finger on his lips and bowed low to the king of England. "'The Chevalier!' murmured charles yes sire interrupted aramis raising his voice bishop juxon the faithful knight of christ obedient to your majesty's wishes charles clasped his hands amazed and stupefied to find that these foreigners without other motive than that which their conscience imposed on them thus combated the will of a people and the destiny of a king you he said you how did you penetrate hither? If they recognize you, you are lost. Care not for me, sire. Think only of yourself. You see, your friends are wakeful. I know not what we shall do yet, but four determined men can do much. Meanwhile, do not be surprised at anything that happens. Prepare yourself for every emergency. Charles shook his head. Do you know that I die tomorrow at ten o'clock? something your majesty will happen between now and then to make the execution impossible the king looked at aramis with astonishment at this moment a strange noise like the unloading of a cart and followed by a cry of pain was heard beneath the window do you hear said the king i hear said aramis but i understand neither the noise nor the cry of pain 
I know not who can have uttered the cry, said the king, but the noise is easily understood. Do you know that I am to be beheaded outside this window? Well, these boards you hear unloaded are the posts and planks to build my scaffold. Some workmen must have fallen underneath them and have been hurt. Aramis shuddered in spite of himself. You see, said the king, that it is useless for you to resist. I am condemned. Leave me to my death. My king, said Aramis, they well may raise a scaffold, but they cannot make an executioner. What do you mean? asked the king. I mean that at this hour the headsman has been got out of the way by force or persuasion. The scaffold will be ready by tomorrow, but the headsman will be wanting, and they will put it off till the day after tomorrow. What then? said the king. Tomorrow night we shall rescue you. How can that be? cried the king, whose face was lighted up in spite of himself by a flash of joy. Oh, sir! cried Perry, may you and yours be blessed. How can it be? repeated the king. I must know, so that I may assist you if there is any chance. I know nothing about it, continued Aramis, but the cleverest, the bravest, the most devoted of us four said to me when I left him, tell the king that tomorrow at ten o'clock at night we shall carry him off. He has said it and will do it. Tell me the name of that generous friend, said the king, that I may cherish for him an eternal gratitude, whether he succeeds or not. D'Artagnan, sire, the same who had so nearly rescued you when Colonel Harrison made his untimely entrance. You are indeed wonderful men, said the king. If such things had been related to me, I should not have believed them. Now, sire, resumed Aramis, listen to me do not forget for a single instant that we are watching over your safety observe the smallest gesture the least bit of song the least sign from any one near you watch everything hear everything interpret everything oh chevalier cried the king what can i say to you there is no word though it should come from the profoundest depth of my heart that can express my gratitude if you succeed i do not say that you will save a king no in presence of the scaffold as i am royalty i assure you is a very small affair but you will save a husband to his wife a father to his children chevalier take my hand it is that of a friend who will love you to his last sigh aramis stooped to kiss the king's hand but charles clasped his and pressed it to his heart at this moment a man entered without even knocking at the door. Aramis tried to withdraw his hand, but the king still held it. The man was one of those Puritans, half preacher and half soldier, who swarmed around Cromwell. "'What do you want, sir?' said the king. "'I desire to know if the confession of Charles Stuart is at an end,' said the stranger. "'And what is it to you?' replied the king. We are not of the same religion. All men are brothers, said the Puritan. One of my brothers is about to die, and I come to prepare him. Bear with him, whispered Aramis. It is doubtless some spy. 
after my reverend lord bishop said the king to the man i shall hear you with pleasure sir the man retired but not before examining the supposed juxon with an attention which did not escape the king chevalier said the king when the door was closed i believe you are right and that this man only came here with evil intentions take care that no misfortune befalls you when you leave i thank your majesty said aramis but under these robes i have a coat of mail a pistol and a dagger go then sir and god keep you the king accompanied him to the door where aramis pronounced his benediction upon him and passing through the ante-rooms filled with soldiers jumped into his carriage and drove to the bishop's palace juxon was waiting for him impatiently well said he on perceiving aramis everything has succeeded as i expected spies guards satellites all took me for you and the king blesses you while waiting for you to bless him may god protect you my son for your example has given me at the same time hope and courage aramis resumed his own attire and left juxon with the assurance that he might again have recourse to him he had scarcely gone ten yards in the street when he perceived that he was followed by a man wrapped in a large cloak he placed his hand on his dagger and stopped the man came straight toward him it was porthos my dear friend you see we had each our mission said porthos mine was to guard you and i am doing so have you seen the king yes and all goes well we are to meet our friends at the hotel at eleven it was then striking half-past ten by st paul's arrived at the hotel it was not long before athos entered all's well he cried as he entered i have hired a cedar wherry as light as a canoe as easy on the wing as any swallow it is waiting for us at greenwich opposite the isle of dogs manned by a captain and four men who for the sum of fifty pounds sterling will keep themselves at our disposition three successive nights once on board we drop down the thames and in two hours are on the open sea in case i am killed the captain's name is roger and the skiff is called the lightning a handkerchief tied at the four corners is to be the signal next moment d'artagnan entered empty your pockets said he i want a hundred pounds and as for my own and he emptied them inside out the sum was collected in a minute d'artagnan ran out and returned directly afterwards there said he it's done oh and not without a deal of trouble too has the executioner left london asked athos ha you see that plan was not sure enough he might go out by one gate and return by another where is he then in the cellar the cellar what cellar our landlords to be sure mousqueton is propped against the door and here's the key bravo said aramis how did you manage it like everything else with money but it cost me dear how much five hundred pounds and where did you get so much money said athos had you then that sum the queen's famous diamond answered d'artagnan with a sigh ah true said aramis i recognized it on your finger you brought it back then from monsieur des essarts asked porthos yes but it was fated that i should not keep it 
"'So then we are all right as regards the executioner,' said Athos. "'But, unfortunately, every executioner has his assistant, his man, or whatever you call him.' "'And this one had his,' said D'Artagnan. "'But as good luck would have it, just as I thought I should have two affairs to manage, our friend was brought home with a broken leg.' In the excess of his zeal he had accompanied the cart containing the scaffolding as far as the king's window, and one of the cross-beams fell on his leg and broke it. "'Ah!' cried Aramis. "'That accounts for the cry I heard.' "'Probably,' said D'Artagnan. "'But as he is a thoughtful young man, he promised to send four expert workmen in his place to help those already at the scaffold, and wrote the moment he was brought home to Master Tom Lowe, an assistant carpenter and a friend of his to go down to Whitehall with three of his friends. Here's the letter he sent by a messenger for sixpence who's sold it to me for a guinea. And what on earth are you going to do with it? asked Athos. Can't you guess, my dear Athos, you who speak English like John Bull himself, our master Tom Lowe, we, your three companions. Do you understand it now? Athos uttered a cry of joy and admiration, ran to a closet and drew forth workmen's clothes, which the four friends immediately put on. They then left the hotel, Athos carrying a saw, Porthos a vice, Aramis an axe, and D'Artagnan a hammer and some nails. The letter from the executioner's assistant satisfied the master carpenter that those were the men he expected. End of chapter 64. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 65 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Workman Toward midnight, Charles heard a great noise beneath his window. It arose from blows of hammer and hatchet, clinking of pincers and cranching of saws. Lying dressed upon his bed, the noise awoke him with a start and found a gloomy echo in his heart. He could not endure it, and sent Perry to ask the sentinel to beg the workmen to strike more gently, and not disturb the last slumber of one who had been their king. The sentinel was unwilling to leave his post, but allowed Perry to pass. Arriving at the window, Perry found an unfinished scaffold, over which they were nailing a covering of black serge. Raised to the height of twenty feet, so as to be on a level with the window, it had two lower stories. Parry, odious as this sight was to him, sought for those among some eight or ten workmen who were making the noise, and fixed on two men who were loosening the last hooks of the iron balcony. "'My friends,' said Parry, mounting the scaffold and standing beside them, "'would you work a little more quietly? The king wishes to get asleep.' One of the two, who was standing up, was of gigantic size and was driving a pick with all his might into the wall, whilst the other, kneeling beside him, was collecting the pieces of stone. The face of the first was lost to Perry in the darkness, but as the second turned around and placed his finger on his lips, Perry started back in amazement. "'Very well, very well,' said the workman aloud in excellent English. "'Tell the king that if he sleeps badly tonight, he will sleep better tomorrow night.' These blunt words— so terrible if taken literally, were received by the other workmen with a roar of laughter. But Perry withdrew, thinking he was dreaming. 
Charles was impatiently awaiting his return. At the moment he re-entered, the sentinel who guarded the door put his head through the opening, curious as to what the king was doing. The king was lying on his bed, resting on his elbow. Parry closed the door, and approaching the king, his face radiant with joy, "'Sire,' he said in a low voice, "'do you know who these workmen are who are making so much noise?' "'I? No. How would you have me know?' Parry bent his head and whispered to the king, "'It is the Comte de la Fere and his friends.' "'Raising my scaffold?' cried the king, astounded. "'Yes, and at the same time making a hole in the wall.' The king clasped his hand and raised his eyes to heaven. Then, leaping down from his bed, he went to the window and, pulling aside the curtain, tried to distinguish the figures outside, but in vain. Parry was not wrong. It was Athos he had recognized and Porthos, who was boring a hole through the wall. This hole communicated with a kind of loft, the space between the floor of the king's room and the ceiling of the one below it. Their plan was to pass through the hole they were making into this loft, and cut out from below a piece of the flooring of the king's room, so as to form a kind of trap-door. Through this the king was to escape the next night, and hidden by the black covering of the scaffold was to change his dress for that of a workman, slip out with his deliverers, pass the sentinels who would suspect nothing, and so reach the skiff that was waiting for him at Greenwich. Day gilded the tops of the houses. The aperture was finished, and Athos passed through it, carrying the clothes destined for the king, wrapped in black cloth, and the tools with which he was to open a communication with the king's room. He had only two hours' work to do to open communication with the king, and according to the calculations of the four friends, they had the entire day before them, since, the executioner being absent, another must be sent for to Bristol. D'Artagnan returned to change his workman's clothes for his chestnut-colored suit, and Porthos to put on his red doublet. As for Aramis, he went off to the bishop's palace to see if he could possibly pass in with Juxon to the king's presence. All three agreed to meet at noon in Whitehall Place, to see how things went on. Before leaving the scaffold, Aramis had approached the opening where Athos was concealed to tell him that he was about to make an attempt to gain another interview with the king. "'Adieu, then, and be of good courage,' said Athos. "'Report to the king the condition of affairs. Say to him that when he is alone it will help us if he will knock on the floor, for then I can continue my work in safety. Try, Aramis, to keep near the king. Speak loud, very loud.' for they will be listening at the door. If there is a sentinel within the apartment, kill him without hesitation. If there are two, let Parry kill one and you the other. If there are three, let yourself be slain, but save the king. Be easy, said Aramis. I will take two poniards and give one to Parry. Is that all? Yes. Go but urge the king strongly not to stand on false generosity. While you are fighting, if there is a fight, he must flee. The trap once replaced over his head, you being on the trap, dead or alive, they will need at least ten minutes to find the hole by which he has escaped. In those ten minutes we shall have gained the road and the king will be saved. Everything shall be done as you say, Athos. Your hand, for perhaps we shall not see each other again. Athos put his arm around Aramis's neck and embraced him. "'For you,' he said. "'Now, if I die, say to D'Artagnan that I love him as a son, 
and embrace him for me. Embrace also our good and brave Porthos. Adieu. Adieu, said Aramis. I am as sure now that the king will be saved as I am sure that I clasp the most loyal hand in the world. Aramis parted from Athos, went down from the scaffold in his turn, and took his way to the hotel, whistling the air of a song in praise of Cromwell. He found the other two friends sitting at table before a good fire, drinking a bottle of port and devouring a cold chicken. Porthos was cursing the infamous parliamentarians. D'Artagnan ate in silence, revolving in his mind the most audacious plans. Aramis related what had been agreed upon. D'Artagnan approved with a movement of the head and Porthos with his voice. "'Bravo!' he said. "'Besides, we shall be there at the time of the flight. What, with D'Artagnan, Grimaud, and Mousqueton, we can manage to dispatch eight of them. I say nothing about Blaisois, for he is only fit to hold the horses. Two minutes a man makes four minutes. Mousqueton will lose another, that's five. And in five minutes we shall have galloped a quarter of a league.' Aramis swallowed a hasty mouthful, gulped the glass of wine, and changed his clothes. "'Now,' said he, "'I am off to the bishop's. Take care of the executioner, D'Artagnan.' "'All right. Grimaud has relieved Mousqueton, and has his foot on the cellar door.' "'Well, don't be inactive.' "'Inactive, my dear fellow. Ask Porthos. I pass my life upon my legs.' Aramis again presented himself at the bishop's. Juxon consented the more readily to take him with him, as he would require an assistant priest, in case the king should wish to communicate. Dressed as Aramis had been the night before, the bishop got into his carriage, and the former, more disguised by his pallor and sad countenance than his deacon's dress, got in by his side. The carriage stopped at the door of the palace. It was about nine o'clock in the morning. Nothing was changed. The ante-rooms were still full of soldiers, the passages still lined by guards. The king was already sanguine, but when he perceived Aramis his hope turned to joy. He embraced Juxon and pressed the hand of Aramis. The bishop affected to speak in a loud voice before every one of their previous interview. The king replied that the words spoken in that interview had borne their fruit, and that he desired another under the same conditions. Juxon turned to those present and begged them to leave him and his assistant alone with the king. Everyone withdrew as soon as the door was closed. "'Sire,' said Aramis, speaking rapidly, "'you are saved. The London executioner has vanished. His assistant broke his leg last night beneath your majesty's window. The cry we heard was his, and there is no executioner nearer at hand than Bristol.' "'But the Comte de la Fere?' asked the king. Two feet below you, take the poker from the fireplace, and strike three times on the floor. He will answer you.' The king did so, and the moment after three muffled knocks, answering the given signal, sounded beneath the floor. "'So,' said Charles, "'he who knocks down there—' "'Is the Comte de la Fere, sire,' said Aramis. "'He is preparing a way for your majesty to escape. Parry, for his part, will raise the slab of marble, and a passage will be opened.' "'Oh, Juxon!' said the king, seizing the bishop's two hands in his own. "'Promise that you will pray all your life for this gentleman, and for the other that you hear beneath your feet, and for two others also, who, wherever they may be, are on the watch for my safety.' 
sire replied juxon you shall be obeyed meanwhile the miner underneath was heard working away incessantly when suddenly an unexpected noise resounded in the passage aramis seized the poker and gave the signal to stop the noise came nearer and nearer it was that of a number of men steadily approaching the four men stood motionless all eyes were fixed on the door which opened slowly and with a kind of solemnity a parliamentary officer clothed in black and with a gravity that augured ill entered bowed to the king and unfolding a parchment read the sentence as is usually done to criminals before their execution what is this said aramis to juxon juxon replied with a sign which meant that he knew no more than aramis about it then it is for to-day asked the king was not your majesty warned that it was to take place this morning then i must die like a common criminal by the hand of the london executioner the london executioner has disappeared your majesty but a man has offered his services instead the execution will therefore only be delayed long enough for you to arrange your spiritual and temporal affairs a slight moisture on his brow was the only trace of emotion that charles evinced as he learned these tidings but aramis was livid his heart ceased beating he closed his eyes and leaned upon the table charles perceived it and took his hand come my friend said he courage then he turned to the officer sir i am ready there is but little reason why i should delay you firstly i wish to communicate secondly to embrace my children and bid them farewell for the last time will this be permitted me certainly replied the officer and left the room aramis dug his nails into his flesh and groaned aloud oh my lord bishop he cried seizing juxon's hand where is providence where is providence my son replied the bishop with firmness you see him not because the passions of the world conceal him my son said the king to aramis do not take it so to heart you ask what god is doing god behold your devotion and my martyrdom and believe me both will have their reward ascribe to men then what is happening and not to god it is men who drive me to death it is men who make you weep yes sire said aramis yes you are right it is men whom i should hold responsible and i will hold them responsible be seated juxon said the king falling upon his knees i have now to confess to you remain sir he added to aramis who had moved to leave the room remain parry i have nothing to say that cannot be said before all juxon sat down and the king kneeling humbly before him began his confession end of chapter sixty five recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter sixty six of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume two, twenty years after, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Remember, 
The mob had already assembled when the confession terminated. The king's children next arrived. The princess Charlotte, a beautiful, fair-haired child, with tears in her eyes, and the Duke of Gloucester, a boy eight or nine years old, whose tearless eyes and curling lip revealed a growing pride. He had wept all night long, but would not show his grief before the people. Charles's heart melted within him at the sight of those two children, whom he had not seen for two years, and whom he now met at the moment of death. He turned to brush away a tear, and then, summoning up all his firmness, drew his daughter toward him, recommending her to be pious and resigned. Then he took the boy upon his knees. "'My son,' he said to him, "'you saw a great number of people in the streets as you came here. These men are going to behead your father. Do not forget that. Perhaps some day they will want to make you king instead of the Prince of Wales or the Duke of York, your elder brothers. But you are not the king, my son, and can never be so while they are alive. Swear to me, then, never to let them put a crown upon your head, unless you have a legal right to the crown. For one day, listen, my son, one day, if you do so, they will doom you to destruction, head and crown too, and then you will not be able to die with a calm conscience, as I die. Swear, my son. The child stretched out his little hand toward that of his father and said, I swear to your majesty. Henry, said Charles, call me your father. Father, replied the child, I swear to you that they shall kill me sooner than make me king. Good, my child. Now kiss me, and you too, Charlotte. Never forget me. Oh, never, never, cried both the children, throwing their arms around their father's neck. Farewell, said Charles. Farewell, my children. Take them away, Jackson. Their tears will deprive me of the courage to die. Jackson led them away, and this time the doors were left open. Meanwhile, Athos in his concealment waited in vain the signal to recommence his work. Two long hours he waited in terrible inaction. A death-like silence reigned in the room above. At last he determined to discover the cause of this stillness. He crept from his hole and stood, hidden by the black drapery beneath the scaffold. Peeping out from the drapery he could see the rows of halberdiers and musketeers around the scaffold, and the first ranks of the populace swaying and groaning like the sea. "'What is the matter, then?' he asked himself, trembling more than the wind-swayed cloth he was holding back. "'The people are hurrying on, the soldiers under arms, and among the spectators I see D'Artagnan. What is he waiting for? What is he looking at? Good God! Have they allowed the headsman to escape?' Suddenly the dull beating of muffled drums filled the square. The sound of heavy steps was heard above his head. The next moment the very planks of the scaffold creaked with the weight of an advancing procession, and the eager faces of the spectators confirmed what a last hope at the bottom of his heart had prevented him till then believing. At the same moment a well-known voice above him pronounced these words. "'Colonel, I want to speak to the people.' Athos shuddered from head to foot. It was the king speaking on the scaffold. In fact, after taking a few drops of wine and a piece of bread, Charles, weary of waiting for death, had suddenly decided to go to meet it, and had given the signal for movement. 
Then the two wings of the window facing the square had been thrown open, and the people had seen silently advancing from the interior of the vast chamber, first a masked man, who carrying an axe in his hand was recognized as the executioner. He approached the block and laid his axe upon it. Behind him, pale indeed, but marching with a firm step, was Charles Stuart, who advanced between two priests, followed by a few superior officers appointed to preside at the execution, and attended by two files of partisans who took their places on opposite sides of the scaffold. The sight of the masked man gave rise to a prolonged sensation. Everyone was full of curiosity as to who that unknown executioner could be, who presented himself so opportunely to assure to the people the promised spectacle, when the people believed it had been postponed until the following day. All gazed at him searchingly, but they could discern nothing but a man of middle height, dressed in black, apparently of a certain age, for the end of a gray beard peeped out from the bottom of the mask that hid his features. The king's request had undoubtedly been acceded to by an affirmative sign, for in firm, sonorous accents which vibrated in the depths of Athos's heart, the king began his speech, explaining his conduct and counseling the welfare of the kingdom. Oh, said Athos to himself, is it indeed possible that I hear what I hear, and that I see what I see? Is it possible that God has abandoned his representative on earth, and left him to die thus miserably? And I have not seen him, I have not said adieu to him. A noise was heard like that of the instrument of death would make, if moved upon the block. Do not touch the axe said the king, and resumed his speech. At the end of his speech the king looked tenderly around upon the people, then unfastening the diamond ornament which the queen had sent him, he placed it in the hands of the priest who accompanied Juxon. Then he drew from his breast the little cross set in diamonds, which, like the order, had been the gift of Henrietta Maria. "'Sir,' said he to the priest, "'I shall keep this cross in my hand till the last moment.' Take it from me when I am dead. Yes, sire, said a voice which Athos recognized as that of Aramis. He then took his hat from his head and threw it on the ground. One by one he undid the buttons of his doublet, took it off, and deposited it by the side of his hat. Then, as it was cold, he asked for his gown, which was brought to him. All the preparations were made with a frightful calmness. One would have thought the king was going to bed and not to his coffin. "'Will these be in your way?' he said to the executioner, raising his long locks. "'If so, they can be tied up.' Charles accompanied these words with a look designed to penetrate the mask of the unknown headsman. His calm, noble gaze forced the man to turn away his head, but after the searching look of the king he encountered the burning eyes of Aramis. The king, seeing that he did not reply, repeated his question. "'It will do,' replied the man in a tremulous voice, "'if you separate them across the neck.' The king parted his hair with his hands, and looking at the block, he said, "'This block is very low. Is there no other to be had?' "'It is the usual block,' answered the man in the mask." "'Do you think you can behead me with a single blow?' asked the king. "'I hope so,' 
was the reply. There was something so strange in these three words that everybody, except the king, shuddered. "'I do not wish to be taken by surprise,' added the king. "'I shall kneel down to pray. Do not strike, then.' "'When shall I strike?' "'When I shall lay my head on the block and say, "'Remember.' "'Then strike boldly.' "'Gentlemen,' said the king to those around him, "'I leave you to brave the tempest. "'I go before you to a kingdom which knows no storms. "'Farewell.' "'He looked at Aramis and made a special sign to him with his head. "'Now,' he continued, "'withdraw a little and let me say my prayer. "'I beseech you. "'You also stand aside,' he said to the masked man. It is only for a moment, and I know that I belong to you. But remember that you are not to strike till I give the signal. Then he knelt down, made the sign of the cross, and lowering his face to the planks, as if he would have kissed them, he said in a low tone in French, Comte de la Fere, are you there? Yes, your majesty, he answered trembling. Faithful friend, noble heart said the king i should not have been rescued i have addressed my people and i have spoken to god last of all i speak to you to maintain a cause which i believe sacred i have lost my throne and my children their inheritance a million in gold remains it is buried in the cellars of newcastle keep you only know that this money exists make use of it then whenever you think it will be most useful for my eldest son's welfare. And now, farewell. Farewell, saintly, martyred majesty, lisped Athos, chilled with terror. A moment's silence ensued, and then, in a full, sonorous voice, the king exclaimed, Remember! He had scarcely uttered the words when a heavy blow shook the scaffold and where athos stood immovable a warm drop fell upon his brow he reeled back with a shudder and the same moment the drops became a crimson cataract athos fell on his knees and remained some minutes as if bewildered or stunned at last he rose and taking his handkerchief steeped it in the blood of the martyred king then as the crowd gradually dispersed he leaped down crept from behind the drapery, glided between two horses, mingled with the crowd, and was the first to arrive at the inn. Having gained his room, he raised his hand to his face, and observing that his fingers were covered with the monarch's blood, fell down insensible. End of chapter 66 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 67 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Man in the Mask The snow was falling, thick and icy. Aramis was the next to come in and to discover Athos almost insensible, but at the first words he uttered the Comte roused himself from the kind of lethargy in which he had sunk. "'Well,' said Aramis, "'beaten by fate!' "'Beaten,' said Athos. 
noble and unhappy king are you wounded cried aramis no this is his blood where were you then where you left me under the scaffold did you see it all no but i heard all god preserve me from another such hour as i have just passed then you know that i did not leave him i heard your voice up to the last moment here is the order he gave me and the cross i took from his hand he desired that they should be returned to the queen then here is a handkerchief to wrap them in replied athos drawing from his pocket the one he had steeped in the king's blood and what continued he has been done with the poor body by order of cromwell royal honors will be accorded to it the doctors are embalming the corpse and when it is ready it will be placed in a lighted chapel mockery muttered athos savagely royal honors to one whom they have murdered well cheer up said a loud voice from the staircase which porthos had just mounted we are all mortal my poor friends you are late my dear porthos yes there were some people on the way who delayed me the wretches were dancing i took one of them by the throat and three-quarters throttled him just then a patrol rode up luckily the man i had had most to do with was some minutes before he could speak so i took advantage of his silence to walk off have you seen d'artagnan we got separated in the crowd and i could not find him again oh said athos satirically i saw him he was in the front row of the crowd admirably placed for seeing and as on the whole the sight was curious he probably wished to stay to the end ah comte de la fere said a calm voice though hoarse with running is it your habit to calumniate the absent this reproof stung athos to the heart but as the impression produced by seeing d'artagnan foremost in a coarse ferocious crowd had been very strong he contented himself with replying i am not calumniating you my friend they were anxious about you here i simply told them where you were you didn't know king charles to you he was only a foreigner and you were not obliged to love him so saying he stretched out his hand but the other pretended not to see it and he let it drop again slowly by his side ugh i am tired cried d'artagnan sitting down drink a glass of port said aramis it will refresh you yes let us drink said athos anxious to make it up by hobnobbing with d'artagnan let us drink and get away from this hateful country the felucca is waiting for us you know let us leave to-night we have nothing more to do here you are in a hurry sir count said d'artagnan but what would you have us do here now that the king is dead go sir count replied d'artagnan carelessly you see nothing to keep you a little longer in england well for my part i a bloodthirsty ruffian who can go and stand close to a scaffold in order to have a better view of the king's execution i remain 
Athos turned pale. Every reproach his friend uttered struck deeply in his heart. "'Ah, you remain in London,' said Porthos. "'Yes, and you?' "'Hang it,' said Porthos, a little perplexed between the two. "'I suppose, as I came with you, I must go away with you. I can't leave you alone in this abominable country.' "'Thanks, my worthy friend. So I have a little adventure to propose to you, and the Count is gone. I want to find out who was the man in the mask, who so obligingly offered to cut the king's throat.' "'A man in a mask?' cried Athos. "'You did not let the executioner escape, then?' "'The executioner is still in the cellar, where I presume he has had an interview with mine host's bottles. But you remind me, Mousqueton!' "'Sir!' answered a voice from the depths of the earth. "'Let out your prisoner. All is over.' "'But,' said Athos, "'who is the wretch that has dared to raise his hand against the king?' an amateur headsman replied aramis who however does not handle the axe amiss did you not see his face asked athos he wore a mask but you aramis who were so close to him i could see nothing but a gray beard under the fringe of the mask then it must be a man of a certain age oh said d'artagnan that matters little when one puts on a mask it is not difficult to wear a beard under it i am sorry i did not follow him said porthos well my dear porthos said d'artagnan that's the very thing it came into my head to do athos understood all now pardon me d'artagnan he said i have distrusted god i could the more easily distrust you pardon me my friend we will see about that presently said d'artagnan with a slight smile well then said aramis well while i was watching not the king as monsieur le comte thinks for i know what it is to see a man led to death and though i ought to be accustomed to the sight it always makes me ill while i was watching the masked executioner the idea came to me as i said to find out who he was now as we are wont to complete ourselves each by all the rest and to depend on one another for assistance as one calls his other hand to aid the first i looked around instinctively to see if porthos was there for i had seen you aramis with the king and you count i knew would be under the scaffold and for that reason i forgive you he added offering athos's hand for you must have suffered much i was looking around for porthos when i saw near me a head which had been broken but which for better or worse had been patched with plaster and with black silk humph thought i that looks like my handiwork i fancy i must have mended that skull somewhere or other and in fact it was that unfortunate scotchman parry's brother you know on whom groslow amused himself by trying his strength well this man was making signs to another at my left and turning around i recognized the honest grimaud oh said i to him grimaud turned round with a jerk recognized me and pointed to the man in the mask eh said he which meant do you see him 
parbleu i answered and we perfectly understood one another well everything was finished as you know the mob dispersed i made a sign to grimaud and the scotchman and we all three retired into a corner of the square i saw the executioner return into the king's room change his clothes put on a black hat and a large cloak and disappear five minutes later he came down the grand staircase you followed him cried athos i should think so but not without difficulty every few minutes he turned around and thus obliged us to conceal ourselves i might have gone up to him and killed him but i am not selfish and i thought it might console you all a little to have a share in the matter so we followed him through the lowest streets in the city and in half an hour's time he stopped before a little isolated house grimaud drew out a pistol eh said he showing it i held back his arm the man in the mask stopped before a low door and drew out a key but before he placed it in the lock he turned around to see if he was being followed grimaud and i got behind a tree and the scotchman having nowhere to hide himself threw himself on his face in the road next moment the door opened and the man disappeared the scoundrel said aramis while you have been returning hither he will have escaped and we shall never find him come now aramis said d'artagnan you must be taking me for someone else nevertheless said athos in your absence well in my absence haven't i put in my place grimaud and the scotchman before he had taken ten steps beyond the door i had examined the house on all sides at one of the doors that by which he had entered i placed our scotchman making a sign to him to follow the man wherever he might go if he came out again then going around the house i placed grimaud on the other exit and here i am our game is beaten up now for the tally-ho athos threw himself into d'artagnan's arms friend he said you have been too good in pardoning me i was wrong a hundred times wrong i ought to have known you better by this time but we are all possessed of a malignant spirit which bids us doubt humph said porthos don't you think the executioner might be master cromwell who to make sure of this affair undertook it himself ah just so cromwell is stout and short and this man thin and lanky rather tall than otherwise some condemned soldier perhaps suggested athos whom they have pardoned at the price of regicide no no continued d'artagnan it was not the measured step of a foot-soldier nor was it the gait of a horseman if i am not mistaken we have to do with a gentleman a gentleman exclaimed athos impossible it would be a dishonor to all the nobility fine sport by jove cried porthos with a laugh that shook the windows fine sport are you still bent on departure athos asked d'artagnan no i remain replied athos with a threatening gesture that promised no good to whomsoever it was addressed swords then cried aramis swords let us not lose a moment the four friends resumed their own clothes girded on their swords ordered mousqueton and blaisois to pay the bill and to arrange everything for immediate departure and wrapped in their large cloaks left in search of their game 
The night was dark. Snow was falling. The streets were silent and deserted. D'Artagnan led the way through the intricate windings and narrow alleys of the city, and ere long they had reached the house in question. For a moment D'Artagnan thought that Perry's brother had disappeared, but he was mistaken. The robust Scotchman, accustomed to the snows of his native hills, had stretched himself against the post, and like a fallen statue, insensible to the inclemency of the weather, had allowed the snow to cover him. He rose, however, as they approached. "'Come,' said Athos, "'here's another good servant. Really, honest men are not so scarce as I thought.' "'Don't be in a hurry to weave crowns for our Scotchman. I believe the fellow is here on his own account, for I have heard that these gentlemen, born beyond the Tweed, are very vindictive. I should not like to be Groslow if he meets him.' "'Well,' said Athos to the man in English, "'no one has come out,' he replied. "'Then, Porthos and Aramis, will you remain with this man while we go around to Grimaud?' Grimaud had made himself a kind of sentry-box out of a hollow willow, and as they drew near he put his head out and gave a low whistle. "'So ho!' cried Athos. "'Yes,' said Grimaud. "'Well, has anybody come out?' "'No, but somebody has gone in.' "'A man or a woman?' "'A man.' "'Ha-ha!' said D'Artagnan. "'There are two of them, then.' "'I wish there were four, said Athos. "'The two parties would then be equal.' "'Perhaps there are four, said D'Artagnan. "'What do you mean?' "'Other men may have entered before them and waited for them.' "'We can find out,' said Grimaud. At the same time he pointed to a window through the shutters of which a faint light streamed. "'That is true,' said D'Artagnan. "'Let us call the others.' They returned around the house to fetch Porthos and Aramis. "'Have you seen anything?' they asked. "'No, but we are going to,' replied D'Artagnan, pointing to Grimaud, who had already climbed some five or six feet from the ground. All four came together. Grimaud continued to climb like a cat, and succeeded at last in catching hold of a hook which served to keep one of the shutters back when opened. Then, resting his foot on a small ledge, he made a sign to show all was right. "'Well?' asked D'Artagnan. Grimaud showed his closed hand, with two fingers spread out. "'Speak,' said Athos. "'We cannot see your signs. How many are there?' Two, One opposite me, the other with his back to me.' "'Good. And the man opposite you is?' "'The man I saw go in.' Do you know him? I thought I recognized him, and was not mistaken. Short and stout. Who is it? They all asked together in a low tone. General Oliver Cromwell. The four friends looked at one another. And the other? Asked Athos. Thin and lanky. The executioner, said D'Artagnan and Aramis at the same time. I can see nothing but his back resumed Grimaud. But, wait, he is moving, and if he has taken off his mask I shall be able to see. Ah! And as if struck in the heart, he let go the hook and dropped with a groan. Did you see him? they all asked. Yes, 
said Grimaud, with his hair standing on end. "'The thin spare man?' "'Yes.' "'The executioner, in short?' asked Aramis. "'Yes.' "'And who is it?' said Porthos. "'He... he... is...' murmured Grimaud, pale as a ghost, and seizing his master's hand. "'Who... he?' asked Athos. "'Mordaunt!' replied Grimaud. D'Artagnan, Porthos, and Aramis uttered a cry of joy. Athos stepped back and passed his hand across his brow. "'Fatality!' he muttered. End of chapter 67 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 68 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Cromwell's House It was, in fact, Mordaunt, whom D'Artagnan had followed without knowing it. On entering the house, he had taken off his mask and imitation beard, then, mounting a staircase, had opened a door. In a room, lighted by a single lamp, found himself face to face with a man seated behind a desk. This man was Cromwell. Cromwell had two or three of these retreats in London, unknown except to the most intimate of his friends. Mordaunt was among these. "'It is you, Mordaunt,' he said. "'You are late.' "'General, I wish to see the ceremony to the end, which delayed me.' "'Ah, I scarcely thought you were so curious as that.' I am always curious to see the downfall of your honor's enemies, and he was not among the least of them. But you, General, were you not at Whitehall? No, said Cromwell. There was a moment's silence. Have you had any account of it? None. I have been here since this morning. I only know that there was a conspiracy to rescue the king. "'Ah, you knew that?' said Mordaunt. "'It matters little. Four men disguised as workmen were to get the king out of prison and take him to Greenwich, where a vessel was waiting.' "'And, knowing all that, your honor remained here, far from the city, tranquil and inactive?' "'Tranquil, yes,' replied Cromwell. "'But who told you I was inactive?' but if the plot had succeeded i wished it to do so i thought your excellence considered the death of charles i as a misfortune necessary to the welfare of england yes his death but it would have been more seemly not upon the scaffold why so asked mordaunt cromwell smiled because it could have been said that I had had him condemned for the sake of justice, and had let him escape out of pity. But if he had escaped— Impossible. My precautions were taken. And does your honor know the four men who undertook to rescue him? The four Frenchmen— of whom two were sent by the queen to her husband and two by mazarin to me and 
do you think mazarin commissioned them to act as they have done it is possible but he will not avow it how so because they failed your honor gave me two of these frenchmen when they were only guilty of fighting for charles the first now that they are guilty of a conspiracy against england will your honor give me all four of them take them said cromwell mordaunt bowed with a smile of triumphant ferocity did the people shout at all cromwell asked very little except long live cromwell where were you placed mordaunt tried for a moment to read in the general's face if this was simply a useless question or whether he knew everything but his piercing eyes could by no means penetrate the sombre depths of cromwell's i was so situated as to hear and see everything he answered it was now cromwell's turn to look fixedly at mordaunt and mordaunt to make himself impenetrable it appears said cromwell that this improvised executioner did his duty remarkably well the blow so they tell me at least was struck with a master's hand mordaunt remembered that cromwell had told him he had had no detailed account and he was now quite convinced that the general had been present at the execution hidden behind some screen or curtain in fact said mordaunt with a calm voice and immovable countenance a single blow sufficed perhaps it was someone in that occupation said cromwell do you think so sir he did not look like an executioner and who else save an executioner would have wished to fill that horrible office but said mordaunt it might have been some personal enemy of the king who had made a vow of vengeance and accomplished it in this way perhaps it was some man of rank who had grave reasons for hating the fallen king and who learning that the king was about to flee and escape him threw himself in the way with a mask on his face and an axe in his hand not as substitute for the executioner but as an ambassador of fate possibly and if that were the case would your honor condemn his action it is not for me to judge it rests between his conscience and his god but if your honor knew this man i neither know nor wish to know him provided charles is dead it is the axe not the man we must thank and yet without the man the king would have been rescued cromwell sighed they would have carried him to greenwich he said and put him on board a felucca with five barrels of powder in the hold once out to sea you are too good a politician not to understand the rest mordaunt yes they would have been all blown up just so the explosion would have done what the axe had failed to do 
men would have said that the king had escaped human justice and had been overtaken by gods you see now why i did not care to know your gentleman in the mask for really in spite of his excellent intentions i could not thank him for what he has done mordaunt bowed humbly sir he said you are a profound thinker and your plan was sublime say absurd since it has become useless the only sublime ideas in politics are those which bear fruit so to-night mordaunt go to greenwich and ask for the captain of the felucca lightning show him a white handkerchief knotted at the four corners and tell the crew to disembark and carry the powder back to the arsenal unless indeed unless said mordaunt whose face was lighted by a savage joy as cromwell spoke this skiff might be of use to you for personal projects oh my lord my lord that title said cromwell laughing is all very well here but take care a word like that does not escape your lips in public but your honor will soon be called so generally i hope so at least said cromwell rising and putting on his cloak you are going sir yes said cromwell i slept here last night and the night before and you know it is not my custom to sleep three times in the same bed then said mordaunt your honor gives me my liberty for to-night and even for all day to-morrow if you want it since last evening he added smiling you have done enough in my service if you have any personal matters to settle it is just that i should give you time thank you sir it will be well employed i hope cromwell turned as he was going are you armed he asked i have my sword and no one waiting for you outside no then you had better come with me thank you sir but the way by the subterranean passage would take too much time and i have none to lose cromwell placed his hand on a hidden handle and opened a door so well concealed by the tapestry that the most practiced eye could not have discovered it it closed after him with a spring this door communicated with a subterranean passage leading under the street to a grotto in the garden of a house about a hundred yards from that of the future protector it was just before this that grimaud had perceived the two men seated together d'artagnan was the first to recover from his surprise mordaunt he cried ah by heaven it is god himself who sent us here yes said porthos let us break the door in and fall upon him no replied d'artagnan no noise now grimaud you come here climb up to the window again and tell us if mordaunt is alone and whether he is preparing to go out or go to bed if he comes out we shall catch him if he stays in we will break in the window it is easier and less noisy than the door grimaud began to scale the wall again keep guard at the other door athos and aramis 
Porthos and I will stay here. The friends obeyed. He is alone, said Grimaud. We did not see his companion come out. He may have gone by the other door. What is he doing? Putting on his cloak and gloves. He's ours, muttered D'Artagnan. Porthos mechanically drew his dagger from the scabbard. Put it up again, my friend, said D'Artagnan. We must proceed in an orderly manner. Hush, said Grimaud. He is coming out. He has put out the lamp. I can see nothing now. Get down, then, and quickly. Grimaud leaped down. The snow deadened the noise of his fall. Now go and tell Athos and Aramis to stand on each side of the door and clap their hands if they catch him. We will do the same. The next moment the door opened, and Mordaunt appeared on the threshold, face to face with D'Artagnan. Porthos clapped his hands, and the other two came running around. Mordaunt was livid, but he uttered no cry nor called for assistance. D'Artagnan quietly pushed him in again and by the light of a lamp on the staircase made him ascend the steps backward, one by one, keeping his eyes all the time on Mordaunt's hands, who, however, knowing that it was useless, attempted no resistance. At last they stood face to face in the very room, where ten minutes before Mordaunt had been talking to Cromwell. Porthos came up behind, and unhooking the lamp on the staircase, relit that in the room. Athos and Aramis entered last, and locked the door behind them, "'Oblige me by taking a seat,' said D'Artagnan, pushing a chair toward Mordaunt, who sat down pale but calm. Aramis, Porthos, and D'Artagnan drew their chairs near him. Athos alone kept away and sat in the furthest corner of the room, as if determined to be merely a spectator of the proceedings. He seemed to be quite overcome. Porthos rubbed his hands in feverish impatience. Aramis bit his lips till the blood came. D'Artagnan alone was calm, at least in appearance. "'Monsieur Mordaunt,' he said, "'since after running after one another so long, chance has at last brought us together. Let us have a little conversation, if you please.'" End of chapter 68 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 69 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Conversational Though Mordaunt had been so completely taken by surprise, and had mounted the stairs in such utter confusion, when once seated he recovered himself, as it were, and prepared to seize any possible opportunity of escape. His eye wandered to a long, stout sword on his flank, and he instinctively slipped it around within reach of his right hand. D'Artagnan was waiting for a reply to his remark and said nothing. Aramis muttered to himself, "'We shall hear nothing but the usual commonplace things.' Porthos sucked his mustache, muttering, "'A good deal of ceremony tonight about crushing an adder.' Athos shrunk into his corner, pale and motionless as a bas-relief. The silence, however, could not last forever, so D'Artagnan began. "'Sir,' he said with desperate politeness, "'it seems to me that you change your costume almost as rapidly as I have seen the Italian mummers do, whom the Cardinal Mazarin brought over from Bergamo, and whom he doubtless took you to see during your travels in France.' Mordaunt did not reply. "'Just now,' 
D'Artagnan continued. You were disguised, I mean to say, attired as a murderer. And now... And now I look very much like a man who is going to be murdered. Oh, sir, said D'Artagnan, how can you talk like that when you are in the company of gentlemen and have such an excellent sword at your side? No sword is excellent enough to be of use against four swords and daggers. Well, that is scarcely the question. I had the honor of asking you why you altered your costume. The mask and beard became you very well. And as to the axe, I do not think it would be out of keeping even at this moment. Why then have you laid it aside? Because, remembering the scene at Armentieres, I thought I should find four axes for one, as I was to meet four executioners. Sir, replied D'Artagnan in the calmest manner possible, you are very young. I shall therefore overlook your frivolous remarks. What took place at Armentieres has no connection whatever with the present occasion. We should scarcely have requested your mother to take a sword and fight us. Aha! Is it a duel, then? cried Mordaunt, as if disposed to reply at once to the provocation. Porthos rose, always ready for this kind of adventure. Pardon me, said D'Artagnan. Do not let us do things in a hurry. We will arrange the matter rather better. Confess, Monsieur Mordaunt, that you are anxious to kill some of us. All, replied Mordaunt. Then, my dear sir, I am convinced that these gentlemen return your kind wishes and will be delighted to kill you also. Of course, they will do so as honorable gentlemen, and the best proof I can furnish is this. So saying, he threw his hat on the ground, pushed back his chair to the wall, and bowed to Mordaunt with true French grace. At your service, sir, he continued. My sword is shorter than yours, it's true, but bah, I think the arm will make up for the sword. Halt! cried Porthos, coming forward. I begin, and without any rhetoric. Allow me, Porthos, said Aramis. Athos did not move. He might have been taken for a statue. Even his breathing seemed to be arrested. Gentlemen, said D'Artagnan, you shall have your turn. Monsieur Mordaunt dislikes you sufficiently not to refuse you afterward. You can see it in his eye. So pray keep your places, like Athos, whose calmness is entirely laudable. Besides, we will have no words about it. I have particular business to settle with this gentleman, and I shall and will begin. Porthos and Aramis drew back, disappointed, and drawing his sword, D'Artagnan turned to his adversary. Sir, I am waiting for you. And for my part, gentlemen, I admire you. You are disputing which shall fight me first, but you do not consult me who am most concerned in the matter. I hate you all, but not equally. I hope to kill all four of you, but I am more likely to kill the first than the second, the second than the third, and the third than the last. I claim, then, the right to choose my opponent. If you refuse this right, you may kill me, but I shall not fight. It is but fair, said Porthos and Aramis, hoping he would choose one of them. Athos and D'Artagnan said nothing, but their silence seemed to imply consent. Well, then, 
said Mordaunt, "'I choose for my adversary the man who, not thinking himself worthy to be called Comte de la Fere, calls himself Athos.' Athos sprang up, but after an instant of motionless silence he said to the astonishment of his friends, "'Monsieur Mordaunt, a duel between us is impossible. Submit this honor to somebody else.' and he sat down. Ah, said Mordaunt with a sneer, there's one who is afraid. Zounds, exclaimed D'Artagnan, bounding toward him. Who says that Athos is afraid? Let him have his say, D'Artagnan, said Athos with a smile of sadness and contempt. Is it your decision, Athos? resumed the Gascon. Irrevocably. You hear, sir? said d'artagnan turning to mordaunt the comte de la fere will not do you the honor of fighting with you choose one of us to replace the comte de la fere as long as i don't fight with him it is the same to me with whom i fight put your names into a hat and draw lots a good idea said d'artagnan at least that will conciliate us all said aramis i should never have thought of that said porthos and yet it is very simple come aramis said d'artagnan write this for us in those neat little characters in which you wrote to marie michon that the mother of this gentleman intended to assassinate the duke of buckingham mordaunt sustained this new attack without wincing he stood with his arms folded apparently as calm as any man could be in such circumstances if he had not courage he had what is very like it namely pride Aramis went to Cromwell's desk, tore off three bits of paper of equal size, wrote on the first his own name, and on the others those of his two companions, and presented them open to Mordaunt, who by a movement of his head indicated that he left the matter entirely to Aramis. He then rolled them separately, put them in a hat, which he handed to Mordaunt. Mordaunt put his hand into the hat, took out one of the three papers, and disdainfully dropped it on the table without reading it. Ha! serpent muttered d'artagnan i would give my chance of a captaincy in the musketeers for that to be my name aramis opened the paper and in a trembling voice with hate and vengeance read d'artagnan the gascon uttered a cry of joy and turning to mordaunt i hope sir said he you have no objection to make none whatever replied the other drawing his sword and resting the point on his boot. The moment that D'Artagnan saw that his wish was accomplished and his man would not escape him, he recovered his usual tranquillity. He turned up his cuffs neatly and rubbed the sole of his right boot on the floor, but did not fail, however, to remark that Mordaunt was looking about him in a singular manner. "'Are you ready, sir?' "'I was waiting for you, sir,' said Mordaunt, raising his head, and casting at his opponent a look it would be impossible to describe. "'Well, then,' said the Gascon, "'take care of yourself, for I am not a bad hand at the rapier.' "'Nor I either.' "'So much the better. That sets my mind at rest. Defend yourself.' "'One minute,' said the young man. "'Give me your word, gentlemen, that you will not attack me otherwise than one after the other is it to have the pleasure of insulting us that you say that my little viper no 
but to set my mind at rest, as you observed just now. It is for something else than that, I imagine, muttered D'Artagnan, shaking his head doubtfully. On the honor of gentlemen, said Aramis and Porthos. In that case, gentlemen, have the kindness to retire into the corners, so as to give us ample room. We shall require it. Yes, gentlemen, said D'Artagnan. We must not leave this person the slightest pretext for behaving badly, which, with all due respect, I fancy he is anxious still to do. This new attack made no impression on Mordaunt. The space was cleared, the two lamps placed on Cromwell's desk in order that the combatants might have as much light as possible, and the swords crossed. D'Artagnan was too good a swordsman to trifle with his opponent. He made a rapid and brilliant feint, which Mordaunt parried. Aha! he cried with a smile of satisfaction, and without losing a minute, thinking he saw an opening, he thrust his right in and forced Mordaunt to parry a counter on court so fine that the point of the weapon might have turned within a wedding ring. This time it was Mordaunt who smiled. "'Ha, sir,' said D'Artagnan, "'you have a wicked smile. It must have been the devil who taught it you, was it not?' Mordaunt replied by trying his opponent's weapon with an amount of strength which the Gascon was astonished to find in a form apparently so feeble. But thanks to a parry no less clever than that which Mordaunt had just achieved, he succeeded in meeting his sword which slid along his own without touching his chest. Mordaunt rapidly sprang back a step. Ha! You lose ground. You are turning. Well, as you please, I even gain something by it, for I no longer see that wicked smile of yours. You have no idea what a false look you have, particularly when you are afraid. Look at my eyes. You will see what no looking-glass has ever shown you, a frank and honorable countenance. To this flow of words, not perhaps in the best taste, but characteristic of D'Artagnan, whose principal object was to divert his opponent's attention, Mordaunt did not reply, but continuing to turn around, he succeeded in changing places with D'Artagnan. He smiled more and more sarcastically, and his smile began to make the Gascon anxious. "'Come, come!' cried D'Artagnan. "'We must finish with this!' And in his turn he pressed Mordaunt hard who continued to lose ground, but evidently on purpose, and without letting his sword leave the line for a moment. However, as they were fighting in a room and had not space to go on like that forever, Mordaunt's foot at last touched the wall, against which he rested his left hand. "'Ha! This time you cannot lose ground, my fine friend!' exclaimed D'Artagnan. "'Gentlemen, did you ever see a scorpion pinned to a wall? No. Well, then, you shall see it now.' In a second, D'Artagnan made three terrible thrusts at Mordaunt, all of which touched, but only pricked him. The three friends looked on, panting and astonished. At last, D'Artagnan, having got up too close, stepped back to prepare a fourth thrust, but the moment when, after a fine, quick feint, he was attacking as sharply as lightning, the wall seemed to give way. Mordaunt disappeared through the opening, and D'Artagnan's blade, caught between the panels, shivered like a sword of glass. D'Artagnan sprang back. The wall had closed again. Mordaunt, in fact, while defending himself, had maneuvered so as to reach the secret door by which Cromwell had left, had felt for the knob with his left hand, pressed it, and disappeared. The Gascon uttered a furious imprecation, which was answered by a wild laugh on the other side of the iron panel. "'Help me, gentlemen!' cried D'Artagnan. "'We must break in this door!' "'It is the devil in person!' 
said Aramis, hastening forward. "'He escapes us!' growled Porthos, pushing his huge shoulder against the hinges, but in vain. "'Splud! He escapes us!' "'So much the better,' muttered Athos. "'I thought as much,' said D'Artagnan, wasting his strength in useless efforts. "'Sounds! I thought as much when the wretch kept moving around the room. I thought he was up to something.' "'It is a misfortune to which his friend the devil treats us,' said Aramis. "'It's a piece of good fortune, sent from heaven,' said Athos, evidently much relieved. "'Really?' said D'Artagnan, abandoning the attempt to burst open the panel after several ineffectual attempts. "'Athos, I cannot imagine how you can talk to us in that way. You cannot understand the position we are in. In this kind of game—' not to kill us to let oneself be killed this fox of a fellow will be sending us a hundred iron-sided beasts who will pick us off like sparrows in this place come come we must be off if we stay here five minutes more there's an end of us yes you are right but where shall we go asked porthos to the hotel to be sure to get our baggage and horses, and from there, if it please God, to France, where at least I understand the architecture of the houses. So suiting the action to the word, D'Artagnan thrust the remnant of his sword into its scabbard, picked up his hat, and ran down the stairs, followed by the others. End of chapter 69 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 70 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Skiff Lightning D'Artagnan had judged correctly. Mordaunt felt that he had no time to lose, and he lost none. He knew the rapidity of decision and action that characterized his enemies, and resolved to act with reference to that. This time the musketeers had an adversary who was worthy of them. After closing the door carefully behind him, Mordaunt glided into the subterranean passage, sheathing on the way his now useless sword, and thus reached the neighboring house where he paused to examine himself and to take breath. "'Good,' he said. "'Nothing, almost nothing, scratches, nothing more. Two in the arm and one in the breast. The wounds that I make are better than that.' Witness the executioner of Bethune, my uncle, and King Charles. Now, not a second to lose, for a second lost will perhaps save them. They must die, die altogether, killed at one stroke by the thunder of men in default of gods. They must disappear, broken, scattered, annihilated. I will run then till my legs no longer serve, till my heart bursts in my bosom, but I will arrive before they do. Mordaunt proceeded at a rapid pace to the nearest cavalry barracks about a quarter of a league distant. He made that quarter of a league in four or five minutes. Arrived at the barracks, he made himself known, took the best horse in the stables, mounted and gained the high road. A quarter of an hour later, he was at Greenwich. "'There is the port,' he murmured. "'That dark point yonder is the Isle of Dogs. Good. I am half an hour in advance of them, an hour perhaps.' fool that i was i have almost killed myself by my needless haste now added he rising in the stirrups and looking about him which i wonder 
is the lightning at this moment as if in reply to his words a man lying on a coil of cables rose and advanced a few steps toward him mordaunt drew a handkerchief from his pocket and tying a knot at each corner the signal agreed upon waved it in the air and the man came up to him he was wrapped in a large rough cape which concealed his form and partly his face do you wish to go on the water sir said the sailor yes just so along the isle of dogs then perhaps you have a preference for one boat more than another you would like the one that sails as rapidly as lightning interrupted mordaunt then mine is the boat you want sir i'm your man i begin to think so particularly if you have not forgotten a certain signal here it is sir and the sailor took from his coat a handkerchief tied at each corner good quite right cried mordaunt springing off his horse there's not a moment to lose now take my horse to the nearest inn and conduct me to your vessel but asked the sailor where are your companions i thought there were four of you listen to me sir i'm not the man you take me for you are in captain rogers post are you not under orders from general cromwell mine also are from him indeed sir i recognize you you are captain mordaunt mordaunt was startled oh fear nothing said the skipper showing his face i am a friend captain groslow cried mordaunt himself the general remembered that i had formerly been a naval officer and he gave me the command of this expedition is there anything new in the wind nothing i thought perhaps that the king's death has only hastened their flight in ten minutes they will perhaps be here what have you come for then to embark with you ah ah the general doubted my fidelity no but i wish to have a share in my revenge haven't you someone who will relieve me of my horse groslow whistled and a sailor appeared patrick said groslow take this horse to the stables of the nearest inn if anyone asks you whose it is you can say that it belongs to an irish gentleman the sailor departed without reply now said mordaunt are you not afraid that they will recognize you there is no danger dressed as i am in this pilot coat on a night as dark as this besides even you didn't recognize me they will be much less likely to that is true said mordaunt and they will be far from thinking of you everything is ready is it not yes the cargo on board yes five full casks and fifty empty ones good we are carrying port wine to anvers excellent now take me aboard and return to your post for they will soon be here i am ready it is important that none of your crew should see me i have but one man on board and i am as sure of him as i am of myself besides 
he doesn't know you like his mates he is ready to obey our orders knowing nothing of our plan very well let us go they then went down to the thames a boat was fastened to the shore by a chain fixed to a stake Groslow jumped in followed by mordaunt and in five minutes they were quite away from that world of houses which then crowded the outskirts of london and mordaunt could discern the little vessel riding at anchor near the isle of dogs when they reached the side of this felucca mordaunt dexterous in his eagerness for vengeance seized a rope and climbed up the side of the vessel with a coolness and agility very rare among landsmen he went with Groslow to the captain's berth a sort of temporary cabin of planks for the chief apartment had been given up by captain rogers to the passengers who were to be accommodated at the other end of the boat they will have nothing to do then at this end said mordaunt nothing at all that's a capital arrangement return to greenwich and bring them here i shall hide myself in your cabin you have a long boat that in which we came it appeared light and well constructed quite a canoe fasten it to the poop with a rope put the oars into it so that it may follow in the track and there will be nothing to do except to cut the cord put a good supply of rum and biscuit in it for the seamen should the night happen to be stormy they will not be sorry to find something to console themselves with consider all this done do you wish to see the powder room no when you return i will set the fuse myself but be careful to conceal your face so that you cannot be recognized by them never fear there's ten o'clock striking at greenwich Groslow, then having given the sailor on duty an order to be on the watch with more than usual vigilance went down into the longboat and soon reached greenwich the wind was chilly and the jetty was deserted as he approached it but he had no sooner landed than he heard a noise of horses galloping upon the paved road these horsemen were our friends or rather an avant-garde composed of d'artagnan and athos as soon as they arrived at the spot where groslow stood they stopped as if guessing that he was the man they wanted athos alighted and calmly opened the handkerchief tied at each corner whilst d'artagnan ever cautious remained on horseback one hand upon his pistol leaning forward watchfully on seeing the appointed signal groslow who had at first crept behind one of the cannons planted on that spot walked straight up to the gentleman he was so well wrapped up in his cloak that it would have been impossible to see his face even if the night had not been so dark as to render precaution superfluous nevertheless the keen glance of athos perceived at once it was not rogers who stood before them what do you want with us he asked of groslow i wish to inform you my lord replied groslow with an irish accent feigned of course that if you're looking for captain rogers you will not find him he fell down this morning and broke his leg but i'm his cousin he told me everything and desired me to watch instead of him and in its place to conduct wherever they wish to go the gentleman who should bring me a handkerchief tied at each corner like that one which you hold and one which i have in my pocket and he drew out the handkerchief was that all he said inquired athos no my lord he said you had engaged to pay seventy pounds if i landed you safe and sound at boulogne or any other port you choose in france what do you think of all this 
said Athos in a low tone to D'Artagnan, after explaining to him in French what the sailor had said in English. "'It seems a likely story to me—and to me, too. "'Besides, we can but blow out his brains if he proves false,' said the Gascon. "'And you, Athos, you know something of everything and can be our captain. "'I dare say you know how to navigate should he fail us.' "'My dear friend, you guess well. "'My father meant me for the navy, and I have some vague notions about navigation.' "'You see!' cried d'artagnan they then summoned their friends who with blaisois mousqueton and grimaud promptly joined them leaving perry behind them who was to take back to london the horses of the gentlemen and of their lackeys which had been sold to the host in settlement of their account with him thanks to this stroke of business the four friends were able to take away with them a sum of money which if not large was sufficient as a provision against delays and accidents perry parted from his friends regretfully they had proposed his going with them to France, but he had straightway declined. "'It's very simple,' Mousqueton had said. "'He's thinking of Groslow.' It was Captain Groslow, the reader will remember, who had broken Perry's head. D'Artagnan resumed immediately the attitude of distrust that was habitual with him. He found the wharf too completely deserted, the night too dark, the captain too accommodating. He had reported to Aramis what had taken place, and Aramis, not less distrustful than he, had increased his suspicions. A slight click of the tongue against his teeth informed Athos of the Gascon's uneasiness. "'We have no time now for suspicions,' said Athos. "'The boat is waiting for us. Come.' "'Besides,' said Aramis, "'what prevents our being distrustful and going aboard at the same time? We can watch the skipper.' and if he doesn't go straight i will crush him that is all well said porthos replied d'artagnan let us go then you first mousqueton and he stopped his friends directing the valets to go first in order to test the plank leading from the pier to the boat the three valets passed without accident athos followed them then porthos then aramis d'artagnan went last still shaking his head what in the devil is the matter with you my friend said porthos upon my word you would make caesar afraid the matter is replied d'artagnan that i can see upon this pier neither inspector nor sentinel nor exciseman and you complain of that said porthos everything goes as if in flowery paths everything goes too well porthos but no matter we must trust in God. As soon as the plank was withdrawn, the captain took his place at the tiller and made a sign to one of the sailors who, boat hook in hand, began to push out from the labyrinth of boats in which they were involved. The other sailor had already seated himself on the port side and was ready to row. As soon as there was room for rowing, his companion rejoined him, and the boat began to move more rapidly. "'At last we are off!' exclaimed Porthos. "'Alas!' said Athos. We depart alone. Yes, but all four together and without a scratch, which is a consolation. We are not yet at our destination, observed the prudent D'Artagnan. Beware of misadventure. Ah, my friend, cried Porthos, like the crows, you always bring bad omens. Who could intercept us on such a night as this? 
pitch dark when one does not see more than twenty yards before one yes but tomorrow morning tomorrow we shall be at boulogne i hope so with all my heart said the gascon and i confess my weakness yes athos you may laugh but as long as we were within gunshot of the pier or of the vessels lying by it i was looking for a frightful discharge of musketry which would crush us but said porthos with great wisdom that was impossible for they would have killed the captain and the sailors <laughs> much monsieur mordaunt would care you don't imagine he would consider a little thing like that at any rate said porthos i am glad to hear d'artagnan admit that he is afraid i not only confess it but am proud of it returned the gascon i'm not such a rhinoceros as you are oh, oh what's that the lightning answered the captain our felucca so far so good laughed athos they went on board and the captain instantly conducted them to the berth prepared for them a cabin which was to serve for all purposes and for the whole party he then tried to slip away under pretext of giving orders to someone stop a moment cried d'artagnan pray how many men have you on board captain i don't understand was the reply explain it athos Groslow, on the question being interpreted answered three without counting myself d'artagnan understood for while replying the captain had raised three fingers oh he exclaimed i begin to be more at my ease however whilst you settle yourselves i shall make the round of the boat as for me said porthos i will see to the supper a very good idea porthos said the gascon athos lend me grimaud who in the society of his friend parry has perhaps picked up a little english and can act as my interpreter go grimaud said athos d'artagnan finding a lantern on the deck took it up and with a pistol in his hand he said to the captain in english come being with the classic english oath the only english words he knew and so saying he descended to the lower deck this was divided into three compartments one which was covered by the floor of that room in which athos porthos and aramis were to pass the night the second was to serve as the sleeping room for the servants the third under the prow of the ship was under the temporary cabin in which mordaunt was concealed oh ho cried d'artagnan as he went down the steps of the hatchway preceded by the lantern what a number of barrels one would think one was in the cave of ali baba what is there in them he added putting his lantern on one of the casks the captain seemed inclined to go upon deck again but controlling himself he answered port wine ah port wine tis a comfort said the gascon since we shall not die of thirst are they all full grimaud translated the question and groslow who was wiping the perspiration from off his forehead answered some fool others empty d'artagnan struck the barrels with his hand and having ascertained that he spoke the truth pushed his lantern greatly to the captain's alarm into the interstices between the barrels and finding that there was nothing concealed in them come along he said and he went toward the door of the second compartment stop 
said the Englishman. "'I have the key of that door.' And he opened the door with a trembling hand into the second compartment, where Mousqueton and Blaisois were preparing supper. Here there was evidently nothing to seek or to apprehend, and they passed rapidly to examine the third compartment. This was the room appropriated to the sailors. Two or three hammocks hung upon the ceiling. A table and two benches composed the entire furniture. D'Artagnan picked up two or three old sails hung on the walls, and meeting nothing to suspect, regained by the hatchway the deck of the vessel. "'And this room?' he asked, pointing to the captain's cabin. "'That's my room.' replied Groslow. Open the door. The captain obeyed. D'Artagnan stretched out his arm, in which he held the lantern, put his head in at the half-open door, and seeing that the cabin was nothing better than a shed. Good, he said. If there is an army on board, it is not here that it is hidden. Let us see what Porthos has found for supper. And thanking the captain, he regained the state cabin where his friends were. Porthos had found nothing and with him fatigue had prevailed over hunger. He had fallen asleep and was in a profound slumber when D'Artagnan returned. Athos and Aramis were beginning to close their eyes, which they half opened when their companion came in again. "'Well,' said Aramis, "'all is well. We may sleep tranquilly.' On this assurance the two friends fell asleep, and D'Artagnan, who was very weary, bade good-night to Grimaud and laid himself down in his cloak, with naked sword at his side, in such a manner that his body barricaded the passage, and it should be impossible to enter the room without upsetting him. End of chapter 70. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.